I thought we were building some kind of House of Cards relationship here. What are you doing to me? Robin Wright season one, not season three. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, Russell passed on snacks, so I'm going to be enjoying my uh, nut homemade nut bars on my own. Oh, I could always have a nut bar. <laughs> Would you like a bite? <laughs> I'm going to be a good guest. They broke into pieces, but there's probably 40 grams of protein in each bite. <laughs> This, it's like, it's just all nuts. It's cashews ground so into a fine protein. paste and then mixed with peanut butter <laughs> and then mixed with uh, almonds and uh, pistachios. That's a lot of protein. Yeah. That is more or less 100% nuts. I don't think the math is completely right on that, but it's a lot of nuts. Yeah, the only non-nut is uh, there's some dried cherries in it too for sweetness. For taste. But yeah, I needed to pulverize me some some snacks because my lady's out of town. She went on a slow boat to China. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. She's changing the world. She's setting up schools. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. We all thought that she was going to end up in some sort of favela, like with a tin roof and um, you know shitting in a hole and stuff like that. Right. But it it's it looks like a beautiful resort. There's palm trees and um little uh, pagoda type of deals and she's only 40 minutes from shanghai so and this is this a, like a region where palm trees are actually native i shouldn't say well i mean like but it's just like i don't fancy. know if they're actually palm trees but they're um, it's just that exotic they definitely are palm like mm -hmm. they have some sort of tropical vibe to it beautiful definitely no snow yeah so she's excited about that and uh, apparently one of the aspects of uh, Shanghai that people have been taking advantage of is you have immaculate tailors that are ridiculously cheap. Oh, fantastic. So you can go through your Elle magazine and, and cut out pictures of uh, Princess Grace or whatever the fuck and, and bring them over to the, the, the Chinese tailor and you say, hey, make me this $4,000 blazer that the, the princess is wearing. And they're like, sure, what do you want it made out of? And you're like cashmere how much is that going to cost oh forty dollars that's ridiculous and it'll be done tomorrow <laughs> i should have sent her with three-piece suit ideas bespoke and the whole bed i know it could be there's a business mm -hmm. there if you want i'm sure somebody's already doing that online you know you take the measurements you send the suit away yeah back in the thing mm -hmm. it's there's an inflation kind of bubble thing that goes on you know everything in north america is ridiculously inflated it doesn't cost as much as we we think it does but our standard of living is so high like the the amount of money it takes to just have an apartment and feed yourself is so high that you That's need to right. charge ridiculous amounts of money for the time you work mm-hmm so yeah yeah you're trying to make make enough money just simply to live just because living's so expensive as opposed to yeah yeah uh, she's liking it she's having a lot of fun mm-hmm yeah yesterday she had a little bit of a conniption fit because uh she fell asleep on the train when she was on a routine journey from Shanghai back to the place where her school is. Right. And she had that, that kind of panic moment where you wake up and you realize that you've missed your stop and oh, now you're no. out in the countryside and have no idea how to speak the local language oh, no. and all that stuff. <laughs> so luckily she had contact numbers and stuff that she had taken along with her. So she was able to have her contact at the school, arrange a hostel for her to stay in overnight. And Oh, that, and I guess she gets to adventure into the uh 
Into the middle of nowhere. Yeah, into the middle of nowhere. And then, by some bizarre coincidence, she found out that she had to go there anyway because oh, wow. the Chinese government had arranged for um, a medical exam for anybody who's got a visa to work in the country. And so she got to see the Chinese medical system. Wow. Mm-hmm. So little blessings. I mean, yeah, sleep on a train and then find out that, hey, I can actually do a bit of, a bit of work early. Mm-hmm. And they were, that apparently they put her through the ringer. Like they tested everything, you know. Oh wow! You know, poking at your your glands and your lymph nodes and mm-hmm. doing chest X-rays and stuff. She was worried about the uh, the Chinese X-rays for some reason. She thinks that they might try to give her cancer. Any more or any less than? I mean, with the X-rays, <laughs> I went in. Uh, you know, we, Canadian X-rays. Yeah. They're a little bit more oh, yeah. polite. <laughs> exactly. Like when you go in for x-rays, I went in for dental uh, recently, and it's just that idea of, like, they put that gigantic lead-weighted vest on you, and it only covers the vital organs, but, like, everything's still, everything else, I'm like, your arms, legs, like. And it's very, the the technician who's setting it up is very um, similar in attitude to, like, somebody who's thrown a grenade. Yeah. Like, they put the lead vest on you, and, and then, then they, they run behind out the, of the room. <laughs> run behind the wall before they press the button. Yeah. I understand, like, maybe you're doing this, like, 30 times a day and you don't necessarily want to be there for this, but, like, I do feel more comfortable if I'm not the only one in the room getting x-rayed, yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. I remember when I had uh, appendicitis, they wheeled me into the, the hospital, and they had a waiver that I had to sign before they gave me this, like, CT scan, which is the really, really powerful x-ray right. that takes accurate photos of your organs as opposed to the shit x-ray that is just blobby gray white stuff yeah and tells yeah, you nothing. like a, a color tv as opposed to a black and white tv yeah high definition versus yeah. uh i don't know cathode 19, ray tube 1994 cell phone camera photo <laughs> um they make you sign a waiver and they say like there is a point zero percent chance that you'll die instantly will hit you with the juice and you'll just disintegrate like Dr. Manhattan. That's amazing. <laughs> and I was dying anyway, right? Yeah. So I said, well, what am I going to do? Just, uh, just just hit me. Might as well go and, out in a blaze of comic book glory. <laughs> the fucking crazy thing was that there was a lot of debate going on whether I had kidney stones or something. Oh. So they actually had to keep on sending me into the CT room. And you got to think that you're doing the math in your head. Yeah. Each time your statistics are going up. <laughs> exactly. Is no, that yeah. how it works? I think so. Is it always the, the I mean, tenth of 1% or does it become two tenths of 1% the second time you go yeah. through Russian roulette? Exactly. Even if it's a Russian roulette thing, it's like even if there's only one one bullet in that like 100 chamber you know, round, mm-hmm. you're going to still spin it every single time. Mm-hmm. But I got through. It's okay for now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although, you won't get, be able to turn blue and get back to life as this blue-powered god. Oh, if only that was in the waiver. <laughs> yeah. One, one tenth of one percent of people will turn into a demigod. Yeah, warning. To try to save a you. lot of people might see your blue wang, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> That's the least of your problems. Yeah, your main problem is you get to see everybody you care about slowly age and die and have existential crises <laughs> about... Um, the frailty of humans mm. and how nothing ever changes. I mean, yeah. good book. Decent movie. So good you've book. become 
a new genre of entertainer. I've never heard of a podcast game show host. Is this a, a large community or are you the only one? Uh, I think I think I'm one of the only ones. I know there's of course with podcasts, there's trivia podcasts, there's you know, your game show podcasts, but I don't know. I think both the the Trivia Club network of podcasts taking off uh and doing the things like the trivia club prime podcast that's starting and a number of other ones including uh the saturday night live fantasy league one Mm -hmm. our deep thoughts one uh i think that on top of the uh the the trivia game show i don't know i can't really think of anyone else who's who does that Mm -hmm. uh like even the big other big trivia club or trivia night people in the city they don't quite have the I think, yeah, they don't quite have that on their plates, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but it is, it keeps me busy and it is quite a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, did did you, um, was it like a conscious, a conscious effort to, like, how much uh, thought do you think, uh, do you put into building a character and stuff that's going to be at the center of this thing? Are you pretty much just being yourself? I'm or pretty much there... just being myself with a bit of a presentational voice uh put out there i mean you you have your your game show presenting and i'm sure there's a lot of people at trivia club that might be hearing me talking going like ah there's that recognizable patter in his voice but uh yeah it's mostly just myself up there doing a bit more crowd reaction crowd playing with the crowd Mm -hmm. uh goofing off uh in between questions yeah yeah but it's more or less still my personality just up there I've always found it weird when you enter into something that has such a long legacy, like broadcasting. Yeah. How people have a preconception of of how it's done. Like, even if you've never gone to school for it or something, people Mm. kind of expect that broadcasters speak like this. Yeah. And they do so in a cadence that is slightly slower than regular people. And I think it's it's half of it is mimicking those that you sort of admire as your heroes, mm-hmm. like sort of uh, your Walter Matthaus and your Edward R. Murrows and people going like, yeah, I love the way he just did that. So aren't you going to kind of do that? Or like, yeah, hearing of Tom Brokaw and being like, I just want to talk like Tom Brokaw. <laughs> Have fun with that. Because it just sounds respectful as a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you're more on the side of... Um the Pat Sajaks and the the Alex Trebek's of the world. Exactly. Who I think like Pat Sajak uh, can't so much talk about it, like talk on him because there's always like that. Have you heard of, heard about? Not this is just rumor and hearsay, but apparently he's apparently, comically right wing. Comically right wing and like drunk half the time too. <laughs> he's a Republican operative oh. posting as a, a former weatherman. Yeah, uh, game show host. Apparently yeah. he gives. A sizable amount of his income to the Republican Party. That's in insane. <laughs> Why is the left so hysterical? I don't know. I there is, you know, it's strange. You talk about uh, talk about early on. We talk about the anti-war movement. I do think there's a segment of the pop. Maybe it's youth. I don't know what it is. But there's there is a there's youth, and then there's sort of a a permanent protesting class um, who needs to find the next issue. You know, apartheid was good for a while. Uh, 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 we've got climate change now it's okay this is let's find somewhere you know I, I don't even know you know this monetary stuff they're always writing about I don't even know what it is I don't even know what they're writing 
for or against. I think every now and then you just need a good riot. <laughs> All right. Segment five. That, oh, yeah. That is, that is crazy, actually. Alex Trebek, though, he's a, a national hero and... And a softy, I would expect, mm. since uh, he's on World Vision or something. Yeah, you know, and he's and he even showed up as one of the, like the, like him, Abraham Lincoln, and Santa Claus at the end of the Colbert Report. <laughs> That's when you know he has respect among like the comedy demigods themselves. When it's like, oh, can I have Alex Trebek here to do my sign off with me? That's fantastic. yes, you can. Yeah, should uh, I pay my own way, or will you be getting me a car? Yeah, you're great, Trebek. Yeah, aww. <laughs> Can I have the mustache back? That would be great. Would yeah, be why great. didn't he bring the mustache back? That's, I, that's enough. I think because he, he shaved it off, of course. Yeah. Everyone knew. And then grew it back on. I think I think he's just reached that point in his life where he's like, ah, I shaved it off once. I'll grow it back sometimes. Not a Movember supporter, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. He probably yeah. has a, a wife who doesn't like it. That's what I think. Or a wife that really liked it, but he's like, you know what? I've had it for 20 years. I'm going to shave it but myself. I don't believe that that exists. <laughs> I feel like there is two segments of the population. There is mustache people and there is non-mustache people. Yeah. And once you've found that you're a mustache person, you want to be the mustache person. It's just society that changes and won't let you be the mustache <laughs> person. You know, it's got its own momentum. When I had the mustache, actually, too, I had mustache for most of the second year of Trivia Club. I was uh, disappointed when you showed up today and didn't have didn't it. Have, yeah, because mm-hmm. I have it all over the like the imagery online. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quite enjoyed it. And my girlfriend was a big fan of the mustache. Oh, yeah. See? Ooh. But uh, even since since I shaved it, uh, I mean, it's a lot more e- easy to manage. Right. Although I had, have the wax still, and I <laughs> have most of the wax that I have not used, that mustache wax. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, like I, I enjoy it, and and people enjoy the the clean shaven look. Uh, even the girlfriend is a fan, fan of the clean shaven look, She's which is come always around. yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. It'll about grow this, on Russell. you. I don't know. A lack of not growth. Like I think that you kind of owe it to your career and your your show business um, persona to have an icon, you know. Especially like when other people are moving away from it. There is no mustachioed game show host anymore. That's true. And there'll be even less of one after Alex Trebek retires in like a year or two. Mm-hmm. Or it feels like for the last five years, it's been like a year or two. He's going to be gone. We're all going to be lesser for it. Oh, God. He, he's, he's got such a, a, a gravy train going. Yeah. Though. I don't. I, I have such respect for old show bus- business people who hit upon a nerve they that they hit upon like a stride or a a career placement that's just going to keep on funneling the money mm-hmm. indefinitely as long as they stick around you know they just have to be able to have a thick enough skin and a low enough ego yeah because there's going to be people that are saying like you don't want to be the host of wheel of fortune your whole fucking life right pat like you should be out there running for republican exactly. primary you should be the mayor like- of cincinnati <laughs> They they elect everyone. Yeah, you should be out, to, you know, buying handguns and uh, and uh, trying to get Rush Limbaugh into the governor's <laughs> office, Pat. Come on. But like Pat Sajak's like, I gotta I gotta stick with it, guys. This is this is my claim to fame, right? And uh, not to return to Alex Trebek all the time, but I mean, he just uh, he just passed Bob Barker of all people to become the like the longest running game show host of all time. That's impressive. Yeah. 
He's been doing it for Bob Barker was the Iron Man. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And he's and he passed them. I think it was season wise, episode wise, and or year wise of just hosting the same game show the entire time. And that's the thing too. Like you do it for long enough that not not only are you a host, but you become like an executive producer or, or a writer. And that's like. Every credit is another zero on the paycheck or another, like, three oh, zeros. I didn't even realize that. That's a, the very important point. Somebody like Judge Judy, she yeah. is the show yeah. and the executive producer. She's, like, one of the richest people in Hollywood yeah. off of doing that stupid mock she, court show. She, like, passed Oprah one mm-hmm. year of, like, the richest women in entertainment. And you're like, what? Judge Judy? Does that mean she's a billionaire? Yeah. Holy moly. Mm-hmm. See, you got to respect that. Who else? Drew Carey? I don't even oh, yeah. remember. Drew Carey has erased his past. He is the Price is Right host now, yeah. and he has, you know, and yet dedicated even, himself to it. Even before the Price is Right, like, he, even during uh, the Drew Carey show, he was still making, like, insane amounts of money. I read his autobiography just for something to do one day. Mm-hmm. And on top of his interesting history, like, he was a U.S. Marine Reserve. What? Yeah. That's, so he that's can reason, kill. That's the reason he has the crew cut, too. He can kill. Or he had the crew cut, yeah. He's lethal. He's lethal. He's a lethal weapon. Holy moly. Yeah. He in, looks like a butterball, or at least when he was mm-hmm. on the Drew Carey show. I, I think it was more the stand-up mm-hmm. that posts that. Just, you know, being able to relax. But yeah, he was making tons of money even during the Drew Carey show. Uh, and now, yeah, Price is Right, Whose Line Is It Anyways, back and still on. And you know what's remarkable about those choices? Mm-hmm. No rehearsal. No prep. Yeah. How easy is it? Is how easy is it to host the fucking prices right? I know exactly. You ad lib. You try not to say any um, racial slurs or f bombs exactly. like, during the broadcast. And it, like, if there's anything I've learned with Trivia Club, uh, and, and some people that participated are surprised that I don't sort of necessarily warm up or rehearse beforehand. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a background in, as an actor, so I have sort of that setup already you go red leather yellow leather on yeah. the way to the thing alms for the garage <laughs> good sounds abound when the mouth is round <laughs> the rural journal <laughs> uh but it's like one of those like you just as long as everything's reduced and set up uh if you've been doing it for like a year or two like i don't know how long drew carey was doing the presses right but like the more that you do it, the easier it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you know the structure and if you're comfortable with that, like you don't necessarily have to... It's good to reread questions so you can get those grammar mistakes out of the way. I can't help but think of uh, Krusty the Clown on that one episode where he's going in to record the, the voices for his doll. Oh. He's like, hey, hey, I'm Krusty the Clown. He's blowing through the lines. <laughs> hey, learn, hey. Learn, learn from a pro kid. He's there for four <laughs> seconds. They're like, okay, Krusty, we're ready. Uh, he's gone. He's, <laughs> already <laughs> yeah it's true yeah because like the more you do it the the easier it becomes over time it just becomes this um uh, second skin for mm-hmm. the or part of your day part of your and your and it's still fun and uh it's still fun and it's still something that you have to find the fun within mm-hmm. you can't get bored with what you have loved doing yeah. Or else it's something that you ne- shouldn't necessarily keep on doing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all just a matter of mindfulness, right? I think that when people start getting um, dissatisfied with their jobs and their lives, it's a lot of times a symptom of not being in the present. Mm. They're, they're daydreaming about 
a grass is always greener kind of scenario where they have a different life and a different job yeah. and they're imagining that the people that they see on Facebook and that acquaintances of them of theirs are more satisfied with their place and are doing better. Right. And I think that that bums people out. Like you need a certain amount of that if, uh, if you're ever going to progress, but you can't be so ambitious that you completely lose that sight of like, what's fun. Exactly. And what, like the reason you're in the game and making an effort to begin with. Uh, exactly. Yeah. You have to be able to find what you like doing, or at least like find a part of what you like doing. If it's not something that you're producing on yourself by yourself. Yeah. Uh, and keep on chasing that or like, yeah, keep on trying to find something more. Um, and so, yeah, that's what the, that's the great part of being half, at least half self-employed, the other half working with the Canadian opera company mm-hmm. at the moment. But like half self-employed allows me to go like, what do I want to do this week? If I want to change it up, I can like I'm already booked in these three locations coming up for the next, for as many weeks as seem feasible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like, if I want to add something new, I can do that. If I want to switch up the structure, yep. all for it. Uh, like, coming up in April, too, it's, well, like, end of March into April, it's all the annual celebrations at places. Yeah. Like, I'm doing a year at, at Lou Dogs now. All of a sudden, like, the third location or the fourth, fifth place that I've been. But the third current running location. I've been there now for a year, so doing the annual uh, tournament um, so it's becoming like a circuit where you've got yeah. venues that you rotate between mm-hmm. almost like a stand-up comic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I have my regular places, places that, uh, people can always come and find myself yeah. in trivia club. Are you finding that it's the same fans that kind of rotate around the circuit with you or there's different people for different venues? No, yeah, I, there's very much the same as regulars. There's the same participants and, and fans of trivia club that come back to their specific locations which makes it easy to also um, like produce a night specific to each event and carry it forward to different events because I don't have to worry about someone crazy enough to be like, yeah, I'm going to go do like three nights of trivia club this week. <laughs> it's like, why would you? Come on. You, you know all the answers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you know everything. Jerk. You learned everything along the way. How could you? I, could when, you? I was, uh, when I was 10... Uh, my dad used to take me to this place called the Steel City Flea Market, mm. which was like a um, a giant industrial warehouse in uh, Steeltown Hamilton, and it was full filled up with like candy vendors and people selling comic books and steak knives and just everything you think of is a crazy market. Yeah, and that was kind of our treat on Saturdays is we would go down and like get candy and comic books at this um, this place, mm-hmm. and they had a magic show. And um, it was behind a big curtain and uh, there was kind of like a low rent um, illusionist there in the style of kind of a David Copperfield type of type of deal. Okay. With, uh, you know, but like the budget of a Hamilton David Copperfield. So he would walk between walls and escape from uh, straight jackets and... um, you know, make uh, a thousand pounds safe disappear. All of the things that like David Copperfield would do times 10, but in a small venue. Right. And for one of his other eccentricities is the magician would do a trivia moment in the middle of the show where he would do impressions and 
you'd have to the audience would have to shout the answer of who the impression was of interesting and then they would win swag mm-hmm. and i wanted the uh steel city um commemorative jacket mm. i wanted to make this my That's a trophy good piece of swag yeah so i went and hit under the bleachers for the show in the morning. He did show. He did a show at like eleven, and then another show at two o'clock. So yeah. I hit under the bleachers, and I listened to the whole show all the way through until he got to the impression part. And then I found out that the impression was of Red Skeleton. And so I went into the second show, and when he asked what the, he started doing the impression, and like two syllables in, he was like, and I was like, Red Skeleton. he's like okay the kid the the thing (laughs) i I got the fucking jacket and i wore that thing for over a year it was it was uh 12 sizes too big right and um, it was a man's jacket for a small man's jacket and i wore it like a a trench coat like a black (laughs) trench coat because it was it was so oversized and i stuffed it full of all sorts of um different pieces of garbage like uh, rubber, um, rubber, um, bungee cords and, um, like a pair of handcuffs and like fireworks. I was like the Goonies kid. I just <laughs> yeah. had deep pockets full of all of these different contraptions and yeah. things that I might For any occasion that might be on needed. my adventures, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, um, one time I think we were going on a train ride or something, uh, out of town and the via, um, police or whatever wanted to search our bags right and the officer came up to me and he's like okay turn your pockets out and it was like a com it was like a, a cartoon i'm just it's pulling like- chattering teeth and <laughs> fireworks and bungee cords and pieces of electronics for shoes for light up sneakers God and damn. just all these things that i had scavenged on the I side hope of the, the security guard was impressed oh they thought it was funny <laughs> he's and like are you done yet no like, you, we, okay you you uh, you can't have these back <laughs> you can't bring a switchblade <laughs> you're like but it's a comb I'm 10 <laughs> yeah exactly what am I gonna do I just use it for whittling officer <laughs> see the stick I'm working on it right now yeah exactly the gangsters ruined everything <laughs> exactly mm-hmm. man a switchblade well done Oh my god, <laughs> the switchblade comb. Yeah, that was totally a, a status symbol when you were when you're ten years old. It looks badass, and it's also very uh, very helpful to keep the hair in line. Because I have curly hair right now, but I remember it always growing up, always when I grew up, keeping my hair short and then like combing it back so it this nice pompadour. Oh going. yeah, the Dylan. Yeah. Straight up 90210. The name 90210 Dylan Herod. <laughs> yeah, and uh, was it the, 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 one of the reasons, too, I, I enjoyed trivia and trivia club and the whole bit so much is because growing up, too, I always used to read Disney Adventures. Mm. Do you know of this? On I the covers, so. they had, like, this, say, like, Goofy and Shaquille Duck, O'Neal. Donald Duck kind of adventures or yeah. Scrooge. It would be like uh, their their kids magazine. Then it always had like a Disney character and a celebrity on it. Oh right, and then there'd be puzzles on yeah. the inside, and uh, you'd have to connect the dots and see the picture. And then there'd be little facts like mosquitoes are p- attracted to bana- bananas, the panacium in bananas. Oh shit, is yeah. that true? I suppose so. It was in <laughs> Disney Adventures, and I believe it to this day. I'm not gonna double check just in case. <laughs> 
be like the building block that everything was built on is a lie. What? So that was the first. Uh, that was the first touch point to trivia. Is that what made you the man you are today? I think so. Disney Adventures. <laughs> exactly. Reading into the the wild adventures of of Jonathan Taylor Thomas and getting to know Green Day. I was trying to. Uh, I was talking to Jessica about. Do you remember those sticker albums that they had? in the early 90s they were you'd get them at the supermarket and they'd have a theme like there would be princesses or there'd be dinosaurs or there'd be cars and the idea was that you got the book and then you had to collect the sticker packs and they were kind of um like on pieces of cardboard and you'd open up the sticker pack and then you would stick them into the book. Oh yeah. And there'd be like the different like dotted outlines be like, Oh, yeah. there he is. Yeah. And you're missing some. So you got to more, more stickers to try to find and fill in the holes. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. That or- was the shittiest toy. <laughs> it was, I mean, cause it's like, of course it's like the collect them all mentality. So mm-hmm. it's, and it's either that or it's, just, or it's giving you this like half finished, like horrible story and it's, it's already a pretty bad storybook as it's it like is. A, a, buying a, a comic book on the installment plan like you gotta <laughs> exactly. come back every week and get a new piece of it yeah and bug your parents each time but like my little brother and sister there's like i'm a little older than you right like so there's there's uh, certain things that like i was able to experience by just having these younger siblings that right got really into 90210 and like new kids on the block and these shitty shitty sticker albums and stuff like that yeah and it completely it was culture shock yeah from the perspective of someone going like what really i was born in 1980 right yeah and so we saw the the, the tail end or all the Gen X stuff was was going on like when I was a kid. When yeah, when you were uh, the, so the, like the ripe age of yeah, um, Simpsons and Ninja Turtles and um, uh, Transformers and really cool action figures and um, Saturday morning cartoon shows that were still violent. Right, and then there must have been. Beautiful. It was like around the time that Clinton was elected in ninety two. Right, I think that. Al Gore and Tipper Gore. Oh, Tipper Gore and her whole like rap. They were trying to um, encourage like better family values and stuff. And they made all of the kids stuff shit. That's true. It made uh, like your, yeah, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and your like the battle quest type stuff and Dungeons and Dragons into something that like should be burnt Mm -hmm. in replace of what would it be like Smurfs or. They're like, instead of using ninja weapons to fight other ninjas what about a storyline where Raphael is having a birthday mm-hmm. and he needs a big birthday cake but michelangelo wants to get him pizza instead <laughs> and so the shredder shows up and it turns out it's also krang's birthday <laughs> krang wants the same cake as Raphael, so bebop and rocksteady try to go steal the cake and the ninja turtles try to go to the same bakery and buy the cake and then instead of fighting each other they have a cake fight <laughs> it's like no no <laughs> and and you go like oh but then they pull their weapons out and they they and get they down to business right it's like no there'll be no weapons anymore yeah. instead the turtles will all carry ropes and they'll swing at things and it's the like it's <laughs> like it's that sort of like thing that had swing. <laughs> it's that sort of reason too of like why why was that fantastic fork mer- like cartoon so bad in the 90s because they couldn't have the human torch what yeah they didn't allow the human torch because they uh, they were afraid that kids would uh, set themselves on fire and and run around burning 
So they put in this because, of course, children don't lack the like self um, fire is bad mentality. Yeah, that cavemen they, they don't got understand that fire burns. <laughs> yeah. So they they replaced him with this uh, robot called Herbie, and it's an acronym for God knows what I forget. <laughs> but it's like yeah, Herbie the robot, who looks like a really bad version of uh, a floating Johnny Five. Oh, crazy. And yeah. so the, the brother's soul was put into a robot somehow? I, no, I don't Tom think so. Ray? I think he just wasn't in the sh- cartoon and uh, and Mr. Fantastic built a robot instead. Did they ever consider that a child might chop off their arms and try to replace them with <laughs> yeah. robot arms? Uh, my arms can detach themselves. <laughs> like Yours cannot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was insanity. And I remember like the parents are so patronizing around kids. Like they assume that kids have absolutely no moral center and don't understand what the world, how it, the the mechanics work. I mean, part of it is like, I want to protect my kids. And part of it is like, it was so much better in in my day. I mean, I mean, I, I even caught that at, I've even caught that with myself sometimes going like, our kid, were we this bad? <laughs> oh yeah. Were we this? I'm, we probably were. Can you think of an anecdote where you felt mm. that way? I think it's just like even uh, hearing stories back from like and stuff that's happening in, in my hometown of, of Asquith in Saskatchewan right now. Uh, small, ta- small town. Show note, people. Find that on the map. Yeah, exactly. Good, Asquith. Good luck. Good luck. But it's like... It, you owe it to yourself to figure out a way to get street viewed in Asquith. Yes. Find out when the car is visiting. Will the car... I know that we, they are... Um, visible on Google Maps from not quite a hundred percent, but it has to be. Yet you can get like halfway down the scale before it just oh, becomes yeah, a blurry the satellite mess. Flir- flew by, but didn't. But it didn't stick there for like take for any too long. <laughs> Nothing to see here, folks. But like when we were younger, when uh, when I was younger, when when I was that age, uh, we would literally be drinking behind the train tracks in Asquith. It, yeah, in the bush, in those tall poplar trees. Um, and like, and that was the craziness. That was the craziness that you could get up to. And now, like kids that like a literally a ro- roving pack of like four or five, like grade eight, grade nine, grade ten kids, are breaking into people's garages and like stealing their country shotguns. Whoa! Yeah, and and getting the attention of the RCMP in the area mm-hmm. because it's like small town Saskatchewan, so there's no local police force. Right. You just have like your rural mounted police. Uh, what did they do Not with the shotguns? Mounted. Oh, and just like, because if they didn't aren't actually violent, do then. anything with the shotguns, but it sort of raised the hairs of everyone to be like, mm-hmm. maybe we need to watch out for this. Right. We should uh, sort of clamp down on these kids. And we're like, did anything like that happen when, or maybe it's like one of those generational, like maybe something like that happened like 10 years prior to me when like, like my crazy older brother, not crazy. He's good now. Yeah. But he had a crazy youth who like was in town and, getting into all sorts of trouble himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guarantee crazy stuff happened when you were a kid. And I mean, that's not even you that dark, it. right? Mm-hmm. They, were, they were probably just going to you know, shoot to shoot pop cans or something. Yeah. Or at the very very least, like, go after squirrels. And it's like, you get that psychosis out of the way when you're young. When we were in uh-huh. high school, two of my friends um, were in the vicinity of a bush party that would go on on the mountain in Hamilton. Okay. And uh, there was a long-standing um, beef between um, some of the jocks that would attend these parties and this thing called, uh, I think they were the, the triads. 
It was oh. like an Asian gang. The oh yeah, like that sort of idea. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they the the Asian gang like attacked the Bush Party with machetes. What? And one of the kids got like his hand cut off, and this became like a, a crazy. It, yeah, like that's something that would explode into like an urban legend, dark yeah. urban legend thing, right? And I was. I, sketchy on the details because it had something it was something that happened to my friends at the other high school so i didn't know anybody involved right and um, i was getting a a recap of it like just a couple of months ago from my friend matt my friend dean who knew people that were involved and they said that it was even crazier like the kid that got his hand severed it got reattached and before he could like testify or um, you know, go to the police or work with the police to try to catch the perpetrators. Right. He ended up being murdered. What? Yeah. They, they like somebody beat him to a pulp and left him in the driveway of his house. Oh. And he either died there or he died later on when his dad left for work the next day and ran over the body. And so like that, that was... Is- Jeez. That, that's the kind of thing that happens when we were kids. And then also like in Ontario... Um, you know, probably 10, 15 years before that, there was the whole like Paul Bernardo thing that was going on with yeah. kids, right? Like where you, you weren't in Ontario. I would know I was in Saskatchewan, yeah. But, uh, but like, it, yeah, did you hear about it in the news. Yeah, did oh, yeah. it stretch across oh, yeah. country? I think it's, yeah, from here to Vancouver. That was full on boogeyman shit. Yeah, exactly. They had like these, these like, cars up on all the TV billboards. Movie stuff, yeah. And they would, they would say like, have you seen the cream colored Camaro? It could be anywhere. Two children have been abducted already mm. by the boogeyman. Um, you know, tell the uh, tell the police if you see any suspicious behavior. Of course, the car ended up being like a gold Volkswagen Rabbit or something. It was right, completely red herring. But does he have one of those? Like, either you see it the one time, or like one person mistakes that the golden car for a cream-colored car, and then it just it spreads. And you know, you tell two friends, you tell two friends. It's a purple monkey dishwa- dishwasher sort of situation. Yeah, it's a telephone game type of thing. And it's it's kind of um, it's just one of those things where they have to they have to um, they have to put forward some semblance of a narrative, even if none exists. The police need and the community needs to to be able to have threads of something so that they can at least have a starting point. Right. You know, exactly. it was a very strange summer when that was going on because it was around the time when um, on American television they were doing that miniseries it. Yeah, and it had a very similar vibe. Like uh, the, these kids recounting a summer where there was abductions and murders, and like an unseen kind of. Was that the uh, Stephen King psychotic clown? It. Yeah. Have you? Are you familiar? Yeah. Uh, Tim Curry was that? In, Tim the Curry TV was movie? on yeah. the TV movie. Mm. Yeah. Ah. But if you recall the story, um, it kind of it, it revolves around a summer in Maine with this group of friends, and in the background of that story um, one of the characters little brother is is mysteriously killed mm. and um there's other abductions and stuff in the neighborhood and everyone's kind of on edge and it's kind of one of those like keep your kids indoors type of feeling right sort of playing into was that just a was it just like innocence lost of the 90s i don't know that mm. seems like that's it's like speaking of the the cartoons that we were talking about and this is just like a confluence of events that just lead people to think that maybe the the cocaine phase of the 80s was sort of shattering to this like 
maybe things aren't as good as they <laughs> as they were told to us on TV. You know, maybe things are a little crazy. I didn't think that the cocaine haze had such a positive uh, world. <laughs> hey, view. man, it's the coat. No, way, that's true. It's not quite the seventies. <laughs> cocaine people hate everything. <laughs> maybe I just need to get to know more people that enjoy cocaine yeah they just want to listen to to music that has like really clean production (laughs) like bell noises and uh really repeating bass lines and not a whole lot of reverb and they want to sit around and talk about business ideas (laughs) that are like totally shallow and lifeless like you know how we can make a million fucking dollars we're gonna import socks from china (laughs) oh hear me out hear me out we're gonna put our names on them trivia club you know, trivia club socks. Come on, yin. Just yeah. they're like six cents for like fifteen socks. Celebrity endorsements. Come on, we'll bring all the trivia hosts like together. They'll be the Sajak. We'll bring fucking Trebek together. We can He'll get be the leader. We can get Wade Boggs in there just for fun. <laughs> That's actually a funny podcast idea where you get Uber niche, and all the only guests on your show are other show hosts. I was actually thinking of that as a. <laughs> Like both Uber Nation and then a roundtable of, of of trivia people in the city would be interesting because uh, I think there's the one the one thing that I that I am looking to do this year even more is just get a little bit more recognition because trivia itself in Toronto has expanded <laughs> to a point where it's like it's it's everywhere yeah like every place seems to at least be trying or has tried a trivia night. If the market's there, see what the market's there, and then, like there, I'm I'm someone that runs three in the city. I know that there's another another person that has three individually produced nights. Uh, ah, yeah, and it's have you met them? Yeah, yeah. What did you think? To, you guys, did you guys click? Yeah, he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. He's a good guy. Yeah, the, he's he's certainly been doing this for a while. He's actually been doing it for eight years now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's. It's a round table I think would be interesting to do and also getting Now Magazine to get on top of uh, maybe. Having their, a trivia section. Yeah, their now. best of. Or at least the best of year thing. Oh, going like, yeah. okay. Well, that would be feasible. Mm-hmm. Just Twitter. Tweet these guys. Except is it only the, is there only two people in the category? Is it you and the, the other? Oh, it would probably be like Trivia Club, uh, another round. Mm-hmm. There, I'll say their name. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another round and uh, like Woohoo Simpsons Trivia. Which, because of its niche appeal, brings in an, like an insane number of people monthly. Oh yeah, Simpsons is one of the few cultural centers I think left. Yeah, especially when you're like going like only the good stuff, like one to ten. I'm gonna be a Simpsons snob. <laughs> and like and and that that and that's the power of why it brings in so many people because they're like, you only have to know this specific range of, yeah. of episodes so do you do you believe that do you believe that the the simpsons has passed its prime and that there was a golden age and we're we're off into to something else now i think there is something to that only to the extent of it's it's something that's run for 25 no it's i guess it's contracted to like 25 or 26 but it's at least in its 23rd mm-hmm. 22nd 23rd season so that means that not only ha- does it have a golden age of episodes from that first to tenth, or probably like second, third uh, season to tenth season, but also we're talking about uh, a staff of writers currently that grew up just like we did on The Simpsons. Uh, oh yeah, that's, who, that's an interesting point of view. As whose uh, comedic sensibilities are sort of uh, 
co- their comedy is because of the Simpsons. Yeah. The, so therefore, when you're trying to joke, tell a joke, it's not something that is original within that in that concept. It's literally uh, influenced by, as opposed to like your original writers, uh, who I can't name off the top of my head, but like these guys that have the '60s, '70s, maybe '80s sitcoms that they really loved, and that's what influences their comedic sensibility. Uh, being able to slip in gags that it, like are influenced by Clockwork Orange and like other Kubrick and even more like auteur, like out there influences into these early episodes, uh, and that's what also yeah you know, creates that sort of uh, love for that stuff too because yeah it's it's it was it was something that was wholly new as opposed to undoubtedly because of the quality that it was influenced by itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel I feel like um, I'm not as beholden to the original series. Like mm. I'm a fan. Yeah. I, I used to watch it like rabidly when I was a kid. It's fun to watch, and but it's always I've on. kind of always um, in the last um, 15 years or whatever. I've kind of just audited it. Yeah. I check in. For, I always watch the Halloween episode. Yeah. And um, I check in on it from time to time. And there was definitely a few lame seasons uh, in the early 2000s mm-hmm. that I remember where I was just like, this is unwatchable. But everything that I've seen in the last couple of years, I'm just like, it's, it's the, the same level of funny. It's just we've changed. Yeah. No, our, it's true. Our level of um, cynicism has gone up. And the 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 thing that we... Ex- after you've been watching like Colbert and stuff, yeah. you get accustomed to like a more biting kind of sense of humor. Yeah that the simpsons doesn't really have it's it's more and when you think about it too the simpsons were pre-cable almost Mm -hmm. so it it was playing in a different ball game or it in a different field than it is now because yeah it was it was in a world where there was still only like four major channels because fox had just started Mm -hmm. and the simpsons was helping them become like a known channel yeah uh and yeah like the reason why their comedy hasn't worked or didn't work there for a while and there was that growing pains especially in the last 10 years yeah, it's because they have to play ball against these other shows that, and this other comedy that they're just not able to, like, you know, FCC-wise. Like, they're mm. still a cable show, so they can't quite make the same jokes as, like, say, right. a South Park. Yeah, uh, yeah that's a good Their production point. S- schedule is sort of uh, beholden to a different sensibility of TV that isn't quite there anymore mm-hmm. in, like, a more digital age. Yeah, and there's a funny thing going on, too. Um, like, you think of uh, the original um, trajectory of The Simpsons where it was a little bit more um, grounded in reality, where you'd have plot lines that are about, I don't know, Bart having a crush on his neighbor, and right. they, it doesn't work out. You know, that's the, the extent of it. When you have a kind of nuanced writing like that, it doesn't compete very well against like the absolute insane ADHD joke factories of like Family Guy and Robot right. Chicken and stuff like that. Or even like, like 30 Rock and Parks and Recreation where mm-hmm. it has to be like, uh, what what is the, it's like uh, four or five jokes a minute. Like just they, mm-hmm. you have to be punchy, you have to be on top of it, even in a grounded. Don't even worry if yeah. it doesn't make sense. Just keep on throwing it out there. What if a fucking bald eagle threw it, flew in <laughs> through the window and landed on the thing? Could they make it into a chicken? I don't know. Like, throw it out. It's yeah. Like, then what happens to it next? It's like, I don't know. Move on. Mm-hmm. Maybe Bart brings home a pair of sneakers. He puts the sneakers on, and then he gets tired of the sneakers. Then he goes upstairs. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're a victim of, or they have been, I don't, and they're still going, so it's not too bad, but it's like they're a victim of their own success. Uh, and that's the whole thing, too. It's like you have to be able to uh, keep happy with what you're doing for as long as possible, like going back to what we were talking before, like keep yourself entertained, uh, especially when you're doing good work, especially when you're doing, doing it consistently. Uh, with Trivia Club, I started doing it in 2012, and I did it nine times in the first year, mm-hmm. which I was happy with. I was doing it monthly. Uh, and now, because I did two to three shows a week last year in 2014, I did it, I think, somewhere just above 115 times. Right. So it's like... That's rad. Mm-hmm. It's both like, super exciting that something like that is possible, uh, and I was able to find the crowds in these areas and are currently st- currently still building the crowds, but it's also a battle of like keeping myself entertained and keeping, uh, keeping it fresh in a way that, so when new people come to it, mm-hmm. uh, like I'm sure like new people aren't coming to the Simpsons, but <laughs> like when new people come to it and, and find it, they're just as excited because they see that I'm just as excited. They're not like, Oh yeah, this guy's halfway out the door. Okay. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> You're coming in at the end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good night, everybody. So Russell didn't comb his hair or shower for this show. Yeah. He's not even wearing a bow tie. He didn't even he didn't even bother to introduce himself. He just kind of walked in from the bathroom with a wireless microphone and started spitting out facts. <laughs> he gave us all the answers and said that You write this down. Are you not writing it down? You're not gonna win. You're not going to win. I'm sorry. And then there's this long tirade about Obama. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't the change we were looking for. (laughs) Not my president. (laughs) Hashtag. And then he dropped the beer. He dropped the microphone into my beer and left. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just microphone and Dan. (laughs) Yeah. What's the end going to look like? (laughs) Blaze of glory. Yeah. I had one more anecdote. Going back to when we were talking about the the sad, paranoid nineties. Yeah, um, I remember at the height of the the nonviolence um, hysteria. Uh, one of the girl's mother that was killed by um, Paul Bernardo. Oh yeah, the Leslie Mahaffey. She became um, an advocate for uh, violence-free television. Because I guess, you know, trigger warning or whatever Mm. and uh, PTSD or or something like that. And so she came and gave a speech to my elementary school when I was in like grade six. Yeah. And she began to lay out a case as to basically arguing that the reason that there's people that are psychopaths like Paul Bernardo was from children's cartoons. Mm. And she was outlining how. There are, you know, 25 uh, punches. Like she was she was detailing all of the acts of violence within Batman, the animated series, which is the best cartoon ever. ever. (laughs) The 25 punches, three car accidents that so and so. And And you're like, I want to like at that that age. Right. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't. I had like these weird feelings of just like we understood that this was a sad lady who had been victimized. But it's also like you are, are completely crazy. Mm-hmm. Like there is no correlation between, um, you know, uh, narrative um, stories that have violence in it and people who are violent. 
I don't believe that, that there's a the yeah. connection at all. In fact, like the, the creepy stereotype is it's it, you always see like the person who had the weird religious upbringing that was like totally sheltered and browbeaten by the parents and like weird psychology games. Mm. Those are the ones who turn out to be freaks. It's true. It's like when it comes to violence in the media, I don't think it's desensitization that's the problem, uh, or at least from things that I remember, things that I see. I think it is. It's true. It's like things not knowing the power of violence, and to that point too. Why there's a such a culture of what would it be the best way to put like um se- like sexism or like hashtag gamergate whatever that you know if, if we want to get into there like oh the trolling stuff yeah just the this idea of because it's not fairly represented be it violence or especially sexuality i think uh it's the it people don't know the power of it um when it comes to violence it that just uh takes away the potential entertainment and the power in that sort of storytelling that you could give to kids. Um, and when it comes to even because it, and because it's not like that's going to go away in any films. Mm. Once you reach, reach a certain age, what, whether you uh, know the danger of it or not, or whether it's used in a good way or not, like it's going to, there's going to be violence in every action film you see. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that because it's, you know, fun to watch if it's done right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be an entertainment mo- entertaining movie if it's just good filmmaking, good storytelling. Yeah. Uh, uh, and with sexuality, too, it's like, it's so, it's so much more cent- centered, censored? Uh, censored? Censored. So, mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, so much more censored. Yeah, well, I mean, Alan Moore, um, if you listen to some of his... Uh, talks on the topic he um has been spending the last little while uh doing proper novels but the project before that was um a sex comic called um lost Lost girls Girls. and um the theme behind uh that was uh him and his wife um they they have a theory that like war and male violence comes from the corrupted sexual impulse Mm. and so if you want to create soldiers you round up all of the 17 18 year old guys and you put them in a barracks together and you um cut off their connection to sex and all of that sexual energy that would normally be making them have sex and then get tired and have like dopamine and yeah cuddly impulses yeah it gets Uh, corrupted and turned into um, like rah-rah fight and this entire drama is being played out against the background of Europe and specifically Austria in 1913, when everything is gearing up towards the exact antithesis of sex. It's gearing up towards what humans do when they don't put their energies into sex, which is kill each other. That the healthy sexual drive that is seizing most young men when they're in their teens is perverted by older men who perhaps have lost some of their sexual drive and all of that sexual energy gets shipped over to somewhere like Flanders and is perverted into killing other young men energy that should be going into something honest like fucking 
is instead diverted into something appalling or killing. Yeah, and you can imagine it um, from an anthropological point of view too, right? Like the the violent, the most violent and dangerous of our ancestors would have been the lone males that didn't have a tribe, mm-hmm. um, much like um, lions or uh, beta gorillas the lone male wanders around and gets strong and then it challenges a dominant alpha male and tries to take his harem of, of ladies. Right. Uh, and you can imagine that, that, um, corrupted sexual impulse working to, uh, make that system work. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the male that isn't having sex, it's telling a signal that your brain to your brain that you need to get big and strong and violent and find yourself a new tribe to take over. Right. Exactly. You, know you need mean? to establish like your dominance. A little bit of that kind of at work mm-hmm. because it's always the, the bros that aren't in relationships and stuff that you see that are the most dangerous. They're like, you know, fuck man. They're, yeah. they're not out like hanging out with their girlfriends and stuff. They're out with one another Yeah, and they want to drink booze and they want to get into fights. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they haven't found that, like, comfortable place within themselves to be like, you know what, I'm okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the the alternative, you're 16. It's like, why don't you learn how to play acoustic guitar? Get yourself some, like, uh, marijuana and just have, like, blowjob parties at your house. <laughs> it's like, that's way more fun, guys, than, like, vandalizing things and uh, exactly and people. Well, yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> find a a like-minded group of, like, uh, of a group of like-minded Scooby Gang people be they a mix of male or female and just try to make it last until you're in your 20s and you're cool enough to be acceptable yeah <laughs> but yeah that's that's kind of what the, the this it's something so strange about trying to reminisce about the zeitgeist of when you were a kid right because like so much of it they they they're all they're selling it back to us every day right on in the media Right, even more so that it's a like a five minute news cycle with Mm -hmm. with all the information that we have on our fingertips too. But it's so fucking superficial, right? Like, there's so much YouTube shit and things on Facebook now that are take one commercial or product from when a person was twelve and mix it with a song or other thing as a mashup from that same era. Yeah, and people will share it like crazy, and they'll go like, "Who out there on Facebook?" remembers yeah. fucking um what was that that uh basketball thing that you bounced around on oh the uh like the the disc it was a disc a with a basketball in the center the bubble bobble bubble i almost, almost want to call it like a zorb or something like that or the skip it you remember the skip it yeah it was like a, a a rod that you put on the girls put on their ankle and they spin it around yeah and like a ball and it. chain yeah you, know, you you just take any of that shit and you put like hip-hop lyrics over top of it and yeah. re-edit the video and people will go nuts i mean I, I think about it too it's like it's just someone else's nostalgia repackaged in a way that's familiar it's something that makes like it was it, it's the reason that golden oldies radio stations mm-hmm. are so popular and were so popular even before the internet and why like the internet's more or less or like BuzzFeed, let's say. Mm-hmm. It's just a repackaged version of that. Yeah. It's all these familiar things like, oh, yeah, I enjoyed that. Mm. Mm-hmm. At least I, I, there is something teleportive about music because sometimes you'll hit upon a song or whatever that you heard for the first time at 
roller gardens or something when you were holding the hand of the, a girl that you had like a big crush on or whatever and it will totally bring back memories yes so i get that i totally empathize with that the thing that i find lame about having all of this celebration of of commercial crap that was on television stuff at the time it's like that's all the garbage in my brain it's like i used to watch like eight hours of television a day when at i was least. a little kid yeah and i remember the lyrics to all of those jingles and things it's like pollution in my brain and i resent <laughs> it so much it's like the three hours before school and then the eight hours afterwards and it's garbage like it's it's even a false nostalgia right like i think about these these anecdotes that i've been saying like these stories about paul bernardo and yeah Stephen king's that was the zeitgeist that's mm. what it felt like when i was a kid all of this other um neon crap that was on television that was the illusion that was the escapism where you wanted to watch television to get away from that weird 90s terrible recession that was going on like everybody was broke right the bounce back of everything that was happening and mm-hmm. Growing up in Saskatchewan, I mean, I came from a small farming community, so the recession really wasn't quite there, but I know it's probably what brought my parents out west, too, because mm-hmm. they're from Ontario, so it's like that that creep of just finding somewhere that's more, it's like uh, moving, if you're now in Toronto, like moving to Parkdale because it's a little cheaper, but going further west than or that, Paris, Ontario. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, you know, any going to a Tobacco, where you can get further. an actual house for three hundred thousand dollars instead of just a, a condo, Com- comfortable living, and then out uh, like a space for what do we had uh, Alaskan Malamutes, something like Huskies, just a little <laughs> bigger. Yeah, the sort of dogs that they used uh, on Dancing with Wolves and those kind of movies, and that probably did, still when do you were a baby, as, did you as ride, it, ride it like Falgor? Oh, I should. Oh, actually, I think we do have pictures of that. Actually, one of my favorite pictures is me running towards the camera with it's like one one piece bodysuit, which is like opened halfway all the way to my belly button. With like, I'm like three, two, one year old. So yeah. don't get any ideas. But <laughs> there is these pack of like small fluffy puppies just running after me too. And yeah, of course, yeah. That sounds like a meme. Yeah, you got to find that photo. And uh, put the the white text over top of it. Exactly like uh, party baby, <laughs> party baby. Not the hungover. What is it? The hungover kid that's just like eyes rolled in the back of his head. That's a funny one. So your parents moved out there. For they the- they did. I mean, uh, my dad was there a little earlier, and then my mom, after high school, just found her way out west, and they established themselves because I think it was this. I mean even more now it's like it's it's this chance to do do more with more space mm-hmm. not be closed in by uh city living at least uh yeah then they so they like moved out to the country and and, and found found a way to live and raise kids and yeah i think enjoyed themselves there's there's a couple advantages to both i think that the city kids grow up a lot faster because there's just uber amounts of culture and a lot of opportunities to meet other kids that have a lot in common with you yes in the country the advantage is that you get to have wide open spaces and it's more meditative so in uh when i was out in the suburbs we had a lot of like just grassy um undeveloped lots and like woods and stuff 
And if you uh, were fighting with your friends or something and you wanted to be alone, you could, you know, wander around in the woods by yourself, um, carving sticks into swords and having a whole internal life. Yeah. That's really conducive to doing cool art later on because you've developed an imagination. Yes. Right? No, it's true. With like being able to make this endless canvas into something, anything that you want it to be. Mm-hmm. I think that there's an advantage. I think you can also have a crazy, awesome uh, imagination if you're a city kid because you'll just learn so much more. You're exposed to, to paintings and you mm-hmm. can go to... Um, different shows and things like that right uh, much more readily like things um, in person that would otherwise be in like en- encyclopedias mm-hmm. it'll give you ideas but there's also something about the city that's very similar to the internet in that if you're a person who's um, got that tendency to hide or want to distract themselves or are at least a little bit like insecure by uh, about your nature the city's a perfect place to hide because there's so many distractions that can just stop you from having that self-reflection. Yes. I feel like out in the country, you can't help but like reconcile and get real comfortable with that inner voice because there's just nothing to distract you. It's true. And I think like in growing up in the country too, I grew up, I think I had that throwaway line of like, you know, growing up in your 20s and finally being cool and and it was just the sense of i think because there was so much self-reflection and so much time to think uh i gave myself like an old man mentality mm-hmm. as a kid and it wasn't until my 20s that i sort of caught up to that as sort of like oh this is the perspective that maybe i had or maybe i thought of myself of having uh so it wasn't until that age until i was like oh yeah i can be comfortable with this mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm I can like reflect back on this and, and enjoy it as opposed to just worry about this or think about that. Mm-hmm. And and if I was living in the city too, I'm sure there was, there could have been with that same mindset, an endless amount of distractions or trouble that I could have got myself into other than just like walking out into the open field and like sitting on that old rusted off billboard and just looking out into the highway. Yeah. You can still do that. I mean, uh, and if you go off into high park or whatever, there's places that you can be alone. I think that, and I think it also helps that, uh, if you're a person that is not shy, I think you can turn that on and off. Yes. Like I think of, I think of, um, when we were growing up, my little brother, uh, had the good fortune to be born a little bit better looking than I was. Uh, he kind of looked like a like a Jonathan Taylor Thomas type of thing. Right. Like he was always had the fashionable haircut, and uh, he would always bug my parents to get him like cooler clothes. Mm. You know, he had the surf style outfits and stuff, and better shoes. He was kind of he bought into that whole uh, image thing. Yeah, at a younger really age. Get. Yeah, yeah, because I was always the thing like my headspace I was always so embarrassed to ask my parents for anything because a big part of when I was growing up was I remember the drama and the fights and stuff about money in my house right you said you were the oldest kid so no I'm not the oldest I have an older brother but he's like nine years older than me so so, so you at least had like the perspective I guess yeah say, on what that meant as opposed to maybe willful 
willful ignorance of of a younger brother or like yeah not just i don't worrying i I just didn't for some for whatever reason i didn't have the squawking bird impulse that like my little brother and sister did and the thing it it gave me i i having um siblings that are close in age to you that are very different than you one interesting thing about it is you can kind of vicariously see how your life would have been different if you were born in a different body. Yes. You know what I mean? Like you've got different parents, but you're, or you've got the same parents, you're living in the same house, you go to the same school. The only difference is like, how do you look and the choices that you kind of make and your interests. Right. Right. And I remember thinking like from an early age that there was something that was, that was a a double-edged sword about being born a cute kid. Mm. Right. Like, I was the kind of outlier liar kid. I was like dorky and I was dyslexic and there was um, moving to Canada when I was in grade one, the American education system is a couple of years uh, lamer than Canada. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't even read when I came to Canada. Mm. And so from a very early age, I just got used to the idea that like, okay, I'm a, I'm a punk kid. I'm the, the I'm a freak. Yeah. You know? And, um, I think that that was the trajectory that I had. Whereas like my little brother, he was kind of like the cute kid right away. And that kind of opens up a lot of easy paths. So you don't have to get comfortable with like the loneliness. You don't have to get comfortable with, um, rejection in the same kind of way. Like when girls like you right away, you don't have to have that. Yeah that kind of fuel that you get where you're that romantic so many of the greatest love songs they're all sad yeah all of the best love songs are sad and they're all saying saying by like ugly guys Mm -hmm. i mean there's the reason why rock stars are all like these gangly like weird faced big haired because they're rock stars but otherwise like they're weird looking guys everyone from like rod stewart to bob dylan because like 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 you're saying like they have to work for it they have to put the effort in to even get attention let alone for that woman to say yes mm-hmm. for that person to say yes to them uh so it, it, there definitely is that power to uh the power and t- of the time mm-hmm. of just w- self-reflective and enjoying yourself that way like i i remember that um what was in grade one i actually was more or less this as uh, Cyrano de Bergerac and wrote a love letter for a guy in my class to give to uh, one of my friends at the time, actually. And I knew she would probably enjoy it. And at the same time, I kind of had a crush on her myself at that time. Now, I mean, we've been such good friends for so long. It's a non-point. But at the time I was like, oh, I wish I could, but at least I know she'll enjoy it. So... Here you go. And I think he, he was one of those, like, he was like, yeah, thanks, man. Whatever. Cool. That like, is ah. so weird that uh, I have, I totally have that in common with you. Like, there was a girl in my class. Uh, I was, I had a big crush on her in kindergarten, uh, grade one and grade two. Mm. And she didn't like me. And I had made it clear. I had tried for, like, three years to get on her radar, and she just wasn't feeling it. And, uh... I remember I really wanted to do something nice and romantic for her in like grade three, but I knew she didn't like me, so it didn't matter. 
like it wouldn't be appreciated if I did it. Yeah. So I like anonymously like filled her locker <laughs> up with like Valentine's and a heart shaped box of cookies and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, just let the the fantasy take over mm-hmm. where she was pretending whoever like she wanted to project that present on. Yeah, that they they had done it, and, and you're I like, remember, hey, I, as long as she's happy, I don't need her oh, to yeah, be complimentary like, to me. Uh, from but. afar, I could uh, just absorb the um, the feelings that she was projecting out, not towards me, but Aww. like the thing and the ether. And I was like, oh, that's, that's that's great. And I remember uh, it came up in conversation, like you know, ten years later or whatever, we're in high school. And it came up in conversation. I'm like, you remember that time when that that person like filled up your locker with blah blah blah, and somebody had taken credit for it. There was like some other person in the the class that had admitted to doing it. Oh my god! Just like oh, and then blah blah blah. Did it. And I'm like, oh, that person's full of shit. They're like, how do you know? I'm like, cause I did it. <laughs> they totally stole a thing. And yeah, then she was disappointed. Totally t- she was oh. like. <laughs> She was like, oh, that was lovely. Oh, that was you. That for him to do it. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> that's doubly heartbreak. No. I mean, yeah, that, and that's just the... Because I, I mean, I'm at a point, too, when, like, I've gotten compl- compliments for, like, oh, you're handsome. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Uh, and I can accept that because... But for, like, the longest time in, it, as a kid growing up, too, it's like I was 100 and... Or, like, like not even a hundred pounds, like 95 pounds soaking wet. Mm-hmm. But I was like six, close to six feet. Whoa. Being or like, bold. yeah, like five, 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 ten. Mm-hmm. But I was just like this super skinny kid with a big head to the extent of, <laughs> are you familiar with, so I married an ax murderer? Yeah. Hid. Give me a bit like, that was like <laughs> that was the senior boys <laughs> in high school. And it's even more appropriate now that I think about it now. Like my nickname was head. Cause it's just like, <laughs> Go cry yourself to sleep in a giant pillow. Like it was. Did you own it? I did. I mean, that's the thing too. It's like they they talk to me, so I might as well just be like, "Hey, yeah, thanks, man." Yeah. You bring the fro pick and stuff <laughs> to school. Yeah. And that's the yeah. thing too. I didn't realize I had an afro until grade eleven. Sadly. <laughs> sadly. You didn't know that that hairdo had a name. Yeah, exactly. My my uh, graduation picture is me with this giant curly afro. That's a good, like five inches, six inches out from my head curly hair in all in all directions did you run into any females that had the same hairstyle they were like hey we're meant for each other <laughs> yeah exactly huh? Huh? huh i did not actually it was a lot of really um really well straightened hair back in the day and, and maybe a little bit of perms when we were younger of course but oh uh, yeah but in that same extent too uh like we were t- you were talking about you and your younger brother like i had an older sister who wasn't necessarily like like uh this cute kid uh to me but she was like had this uh confidence to herself early on Mm. and i think because when we were growing up like she was just she's a year 14 months older but she had this in charge attitude Mm -hmm. i was subservient she was like dominant and then she just yeah the big uh was able to ride that big sister sort of mentality to uh have a much more different uh, high school experience than i be in a much more accepted social circle. And uh, and I, of course, at least found my people, but I was also very much, like, did, didn't want to get into a fight, always deferred, uh, made better friends with teachers than with other school kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was reflecting on it because uh, I was 
I remember I was having a conversation with my mom about uh, my friends when I was a kid. And she uh, she laughed and she said, like, you didn't have any friends when you were a kid. Oh. So I, was, I said, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not true, mom. And I, I was doing an inventory and I realized that there was a there was a, a, a couple of summers from like grade six to grade eight where I got completely excommunicated for no reason. Oh, wow. There was like some weird kind of combination of a practical joke that went wrong and then things just went too far. Yeah. Where, you know, it started off as like a practical joke where my best friends were like, let's pretend we don't like Jesse anymore. And then it after became a while, habitual. it got real. <laughs> oh, no. You know, and then everybody, it started to get into real awkwardness. And then it went on for like three years. And my, my, the same thing happened to my little girlfriend when I was in grade six. Mm. And she had to move off to uh, Glendale or whatever. And uh, yeah, I remember there was three summers where I was kind of hanging out with all of the all the freaks in the neighborhood you know there was a a couple of other like super poor crazy families in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and me and jordan and jillian would hang out with like bradley the wolf boy you know bradley the wolf boy lived down the street and he went to our bus stop yeah and i swear like it might be my imagination painting the past but he was he had uh scruffy body hair and yeah. he was about three feet tall and he would howl he was just this like feral a, youth he was a feral youth with claws and fangs i think yeah and he was rowdy like he would bounce around like a dog and bark and if he got agitated he would bite people right it's it's that uh, blood sugar it does crazy <laughs> things man he had a co- uh, elevated cortisol in his blood. He has just a diet consisting of uh, candy corns and fun dip. He can't afford candy corns and fun dip. He steals it. <laughs> so Jillian and Jordan would hang out with Bradley the Wolf Boy. And uh, there would be, you know, uh, this kid Joey in my uh, in my area whose dad had like burnt out cars on his lawn. And I'd hang out with Joey and this other kid, uh, David. And they taught me things about uh, that side of life, you know? Like, there's kids who, you know, drink beer with their dads. And there's kids that learn from an early age that, like, wrecking stuff is fun. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we, you know, you can break things with cinder blocks. And, and it's a lot cheaper can... than movies. <laughs> yeah. For reals, yo. Setting things on fire can be a, a, a good pastime. Yeah, luckily, luckily we had a, a bonfire, like, pit in the backyard. Because I think my mom must have known. They're like, oh, you know what? You know what would be good for the kids? As long as it's I, I have an eye out on them at the back door, they can burn whatever they want. And <laughs> <laughs> so we just, like, you know, popped it in the, in the burning barrel and around the, like, little tractor tire and maybe got too, a little too... Uh, a little too comfortable with the gasoline tank here and there, but I remember one time my, my friend Pete just like poured the gas directly from the tank onto the fire mm-hmm. uh, and it burst up and started the tip of the tank on fire. Mm. And it was like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Running away, and luckily it just went out, but it was just like, oh, this is going to explode one of these days. Yeah, I think they're designed to not do that. That's good. <laughs> thank, That's, God. Uh, thank God. Thank God. Oh, we could have lost our toys. Mm. I did burn my sister's Barbies. I was that kid. Nice. Yeah, cutting hair and she and got mad. yeah, 
mm-hmm. and playing with a lighter. And she, cause she had a lot of Barbies. I was the Ninja Tur- Turtles kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me too. Uh, Raphael was my favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked Baxter Stockman. I liked all the villain characters. Oh, nice. I mean, Debob and Rocksteady are amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good designs. Yeah, exactly. And Ujimbo, uh, the, uh, the rabbit. The rabbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was rad. I was, I was talking uh, about this to uh, my friends the other day and how it's hard to explain. You can't understand Ninja Turtles by going on to YouTube nowadays and watching the show because right. the show sucks. It, and we knew the show sucked when we were kids. Like everything, it doesn't age well. All it was was a ritual that you felt like obligated to go through on Saturdays because it gave you something to supplement mm. the toys. Yeah. The toys were the thing. Your imagination is the best cartoon that you could ever think and of. And you would get the toy and then you would go like, oh my God, they're going to put Yojimbo on the series. And you turn into the episode and you go, oh my God, it's it's terribly drawn <laughs> and boring. Yeah. And uh, this is what they decided to do with it? Yeah, this is the story? He's supposed to be, you know, the rabbits and the mutagen and the and goes the exactly. They would have a very lush backstory on the box that yeah. was never addressed on the show. Sort of like yeah, we only have half an hour and or like what would it be like twenty two minutes. We're not going to actually get into it. No, we're gonna we can't hire a voice actor. We don't have the money for that. Yeah, just, it's going to be the guy who was Raphael, just in a slightly <laughs> higher pitch. Maybe something that's vaguely racist, Japanese sounding. Yeah. He's going to do an accent, but not well. But he's hired. I melted some of my toys. I had, uh, when I was a little kid, I had a porcelain, um, kind of looked like Thomas. It was like a little choo-choo train. Oh, yeah. With a light bulb in it. And um, it had a lid so that you could put the burning hot light bulb in it. And if your kid threw a pillow on top of it or whatever. It would start on fire? No. No, it would be safe. (laughs) Like it was, it protected the light bulb from small fingers being able to touch it and stuff and i realized pretty soon that if you put a marvel action figure inside that porcelain choo-choo with the light bulb on it became a torture chamber that could (laughs) melt the shit out of those action figures that's incredible so fucking iron man went into the choo-choo and got melted confection Uh, oven (laughs) all of the the b-list marvel characters Mm. meta doom and how how crazy is it that just because it was the only one that they didn't sell off and it seemed like the easiest story to tell that like iron man's now an a-list superhero well i I, it's just really good brand handling on the part of like disney and marvel they've got uh, a huge amount of backstory from the comics oh, that yeah, they can draw from a wealth of information and like after you sell off like uh spider-man and spider-man and bah, 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 the x-men to uh, to fox or oh, wait spider-man is sony but like fantastic four x-men spider-man even neymar they sold off mm-hmm. they just gave away because it's like they were short on money and they weren't quite disney yet so they got to make money somehow and then they got pissed because they saw how much money that these well, franchises were making. Well, aside from that, they they were like, "You guys are fucking it up. Like, yeah. Why don't you just make the? Th- we've already written the stories. Just make this into the movie. Yeah. As and you can see, it's working out pretty well for us now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep up the good work. <laughs> You're hurting our brand potential, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now they're doing it in reverse, where they say like, "Just give us back Spider-Man, yeah. and we'll pay you five million dollars to do nothing." Yeah. 
exactly nothing just give us the thing back you'll get 50 percent, and we'll just tell the stories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. but it'll at least keep our entire like our our brand safer mm-hmm. my friend todd was uh thinking about how these uh all of this literature that's built up around um characters for the last like 60 years like you got 60 years of batman stories yep for instance yep and he was making an argument that there's no neat reason for any person who's interested in, in writing something like Batman to not make it a Batman story. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because it's it's a different era now. We're kind of getting back into like an oral culture. Back in the oral culture days, you had uh, Greek gods and things that would come in and out of stories, and they were old favorites. Mm. And they had been through trial and error and through the port, the, the court of public opinion and through um, just some sort of evolution, they had arrived at like the most unique traits from one another mm-hmm. that were popular enough to stick in people's imaginations. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they were archetypes and there was no need to, to try to reinvent the wheel a second time. No, you, you could just like, cut and paste and put the things like and then pan showed up not to mention because like familiarity you're like oh you just say zeus and people know exactly who zeus is yeah yeah, you say superman they know exactly who superman is Mm -hmm. uh and it's it's the power of like this sequential storytelling that started probably i would say with radio and then like branches off into television and before that even comic books like just before tv uh but like concurrently with like everything started exploding and now it's gotten even easier to tell those sequential stories with uh, with the internet, um, and it builds like yeah the, this this legacy that we that you didn't really see other than maybe within books with like Sherlock Holmes and these characters that become just mm-hmm. easy to show, easy to produce, produce, and if they catch on, they're making you loads of money. Yeah, uh, all of Charles Dickens stuff was serialized, mm-hmm. and you have yeah the these characters returning yeah mm-hmm. and and because it's sequential storylines too it's like there's no never really an end no mm-hmm. and there's something that's more realistic about that too because isn't that what life is like right yeah. like every day there's major plot points that happen within your life but every day you step outside the door it's a it's a continuing adventure right you go like okay i wonder where what this rivalry at work is going to escalate into right i wonder if this is going to be the day that we finally come to blows and i bash a chair over that bitch's (laughs) head or she strangles me to death or you know i get fired for saying the wrong thing yeah exactly it 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 grows to this extent where it's just everyday life and then it's because it's sequential and it's proved to be worked so well for so long that that it evolves with time too a character like Superman who has a certain or- origin story in the 60s or what would it be in the 30s changes into the 60s into the 70s with every age a new generation gets to know it so that it matches more that generation than the one before it. Mm-hmm. And they have to keep on what I guess reboot is the word. Reboot or you have to you have to touch base with the roots again every so often. Yeah. To reestablish like what made the character work in the first place exactly you're doing these marquee origin stories not just to reintegrate like oh this is what you know right it's also to like go hey you kid yeah you're you're gonna love this and roping in this new generation of uh of viewers and or readers uh 
it is really interesting with the comic book industry seeing both uh, with the big imprints with Marvel and DC how what they do differently to make that work. Yeah, uh, like with DC, they're going like they always go full haul every it was twenty years, and now it's like ten years. And even like the last five, I think they're going to do it again. Of like, we're just going to do a gigantic clean sweep again, mega start again saga. Mm-hmm. Like bringing back everyone you used to love and seeing who sticks. What kind of sales we're going to get on this? <laughs> Remember the Wasp? Yeah, let's bring that back. Yeah, and then you know it turns out the Wasp never found its audience in the '60s, but it, she's back. And the uh, the thing that's funny about it too is there's legal reasons, right? You've got lawyers that are looking at the books and they're saying. You know, if you don't release a new story based on this character, you're going to lose the copyright. So yeah, I could be wrong, but like going. speaking of like the age of Disney, like because of Mickey Mouse, like uh, copyrights is nothing like it used to be. Like, um, oh, it's a it's a bizarre juggernaut. Because what's is. what's the world I'm thinking of? Like with uh, Sherlock Holmes, probably like or in of, of that public instance, domain. yeah, like yeah. stories used to become public domain after sixty years, seventy mm-hmm. years. Um, but after Mickey Mouse exploded, I think it was specifically Walt, the Walt Disney Corporation that like helped, uh, push forward that like, as long as we keep this viable, it's not public domain, it's ours. Yeah. So you have the businesses buying up properties and then just continuing to sell stories so they keep that, the rights. Recycling it, keeping Mm -hmm. the rights going. And that's why like, even with film rights, Mm -hmm. you have, uh, 20th century fox making a a new fantastic four movie because damn it they want to keep those rights yeah not to say that it won't be a good movie it's just that you like you're fighting to keep copyrights as opposed to tell interesting stories do you think that that is a, a business that's going to be tenable do you think it's going to hold pulled up comic books no the the idea that like you can keep on uh, milking the same characters forever and trying to like sue people from uh, developing that stuff. There seems to be such a vibrant fan art um, collective. Yeah. And uh, there's enough like talent within those groups that they're kind of going on their own steam. Yeah. And it doesn't even matter that they don't own the copyright because they're not doing stuff that they're getting paid for anyway. Right. Exactly. And then you combine that with, the fact that there's so much going on on the internet where people are, we're just at the very beginning of it. And as we move forward, there's going to be a lot more people that take the opportunity to contribute and offer their ideas. Mm. And I just feel like we're getting to this tipping point where there is so much free stuff that you could go through on the internet that when, um, Marvel, maybe not Marvel, but like they come out with a new Spider-Man movie yeah, and they say you got to go to this theater and pay us twenty five dollars to watch it. And if you download it for free, we're gonna send you copyright notices, right. and we're gonna be all nasty and and selfish about it. I think like ultimately like they can't compete. What yeah. the fuck, right? Like it's like I'm I'm forgetting about a lot of that stuff just because it's too inconvenient. Mm. You know, I think that eventually it's not a coincidence that like at at this time you're starting to see like Snoop Dogg open his own YouTube channel or you know um celebrities doing they're slumming it just like the rest of us on the internet now yeah. everybody is on the same plane when it comes to twitter exactly everyone's just trying to make it work stuff. yeah 
because it's, it's true. It's like forever is a very long time. So it's like, and it's you're seeing it too with like the music industry. Like the bubble has to burst before changes are made, and like a, pre- a new precedent has to be set. Like everything, it's because it's entertainment. Because it's like the show. It's also the business. Mm-hmm. Like it, it has to be proven to sell, uh, to work, and it has to be proven to not sell for it to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like superhero movies are going to start keep on being made until there's like that string of four or five that just busts. Exactly. You're seeing, and you're, like you see it on a smaller scale with like actors career. Mm-hmm. You see like, like Will Smith is, is making focus and it's like there and gone as opposed to him in his, in his independence day, bad boys two phase when it's just like, he's, he's solid gold. Right. Uh, like Tom Cruise is not Tom Cruise anymore because he proved not to be a viable movie star. Oh, not only that, it's like, this is this is kind of what I was trying to get at clunkily a minute ago when I was saying that these those superhero characters are valuable because of the the space that they occupy in the imagination, right? Mm. Because of that collective consciousness that's that's all these like child children like dreaming big and enlivening them and enriching them. As soon as you start to like tie up those reins and make it harder for people to access and forget that there's a lot of other things competing, you know, um, I think that they're abusing their position and I think that I wouldn't be surprised if it all dries up in the way that you're describing, like where suddenly Tom Cruise isn't what he used to be because people don't believe in Tom Cruise anymore. It's like you've become complacent and you put out like, yeah, shot of your work. So like that that property that once became that once was this uh, this avatar for you know your disenfranchised youth or like with Spider Man like your adolescent uh, awkwardness um, once that becomes not what it was that made it popular then you're dealing with a property that like isn't viable yeah it's like it, when it can't speak to the next generation the next generation is going to forget about it mm-hmm. uh, and and the good thing you see with the current comic book industry, I think too, is that the, the, um, creator, creator owned side of things because of the examples they see all the way back from like the thirties to now of, uh, creators being mismanaged, um, creators who create things and then just like lose all the rights to these corporations. Uh, you're seeing like the superstar artists and writers, sort of take charge and be like, I'm going to tell my own story. I'm going to keep all the rights. I'm going to help get help with publishing, but I'm going to prove my worth and then make my own money in a way that's uh, protective to my interests. As it should have been from the beginning. Exactly. The only reason that these large companies uh, full of lawyers were able to leverage the position that they had Mm. was you had gatekeepers that could say, there's only five channels on television. Yeah. And we get to decide what's on it. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a certain amount of money and connections, then you can be one of those sh- shows that are on the TV. Yeah. Or one of those 25 movies that get released or one of those blank, 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 mm-hmm. blank. And, be- and now the gates are wide open. Yeah. And so you get weird things happening like um, 16 year old girls making more than a million dollars a year selling a racy teen fiction to like other 16 year old girls and people who think like them. And it flies completely under the radar until like the big numbers start coming in. Mm. And then 
you know, companies start approaching them. And for a while, there's going to be this this temptation where you go like, I can get legit if I take the money. My parents will know that I've been signed to Warner or whatever. That'll still have some prestige, mm. but I don't think it's very long. I think maybe ten years before people have like a, grown accustomed to the internet, and the prestige will come for how much, how much, how tight can you make it? How much are you at the center of the thing? And, and that's the thing too. With uh, I find interesting with like how kids are making money these days mm-hmm. and how easy it is for them, and then how. It was that uh, the businesses worked in their, you know, in in their youth, like comic books, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. It's something that I've been able to know a little bit more about, but just like enjoying reading into it. Of like knowing that in its start, in its heyday, in its in its birth, it was an instance of you know, 16, 17, 18 year old kids that were legitimately like so interested in these pulp stories. And they were given the chances by these hungry publishers that their market share was shit, but they saw that this kid was onto something. And this kid who loved this new like Superman story or these new superhero stories also had this wild imagination that they could take advantage of. But he also had a sort of, uh, uh, trust in the business that probably wasn't earned because they were ready to take advantage of these kids. They were ready to make millions and get these lavish offices and get tons from it and give like the kid like two cents on the $10 mm. sort of thing because they were able to sign them to those contracts because they were young and dumb and hungry enough to make it work. Have you read uh, Cavalier and Clay? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That kind of fits right in there. I think that there was among the people who started the first uh, comic book uh, franchises, there was um, a lot of to get into the, the headspace of those those people like a lot of people a lot of people who wrote the first comic book characters were recent immigrants and that's kind of like what Cavalier and Claire Clay goes into um, you've got a Jewish kid who's coming from war-turn Germany and he's arriving in the big city and seeing these monstrous new inventions called skyscrapers and your your relief and your um, upbringing from like the old country which was full of like um, myths and, and legends about uh, characters it gets channeled into like this new um, avenue this new world where you can understand like how the combination of old world myths being put into the, the context of a modern city like New York and the skyscrapers how like that would be such a easy breeding ground for a superhero exactly it's the symbolism of uh like the old world religion being sort of made crystal clear and almost like concrete Mm -hmm. made human uh yeah and they flipped it right like they uh the heroes were the kids in a a funny way Mm -hmm. like there's so many origin stories about a regular clunky um disadvantaged person gaining um these incredible powers or like having secret hidden incredible powers yeah it's kind of like the the essence of the 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 kid power fantasy all of this stuff is is kind of at at its root it has that same story and in the 21st century too you're like you said too there's no more gatekeepers the with the with the birth of like things like youtube and twitter and like this just social media expanding the reach 
of any one person. You never, you don't need to talk to those middlemen to have something catch. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't need to uh, like talk to the right person on the right day in in a record studio for them to like put your music out there. You can just put your music out there. Mm-hmm. And if it's and it's if it's good and if you're lucky, just like any other moment, like you can make a million dollars. You can mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. mustache twirl. Ooh. Um, yeah, and it ties in with. Uh, with what I was saying about like uh, kids' fascination with superheroes and the um, power fantasies, you can imagine that um, superheroes might not have as strong a shelf life if it's so easy to see kids your own age that are doing real stuff. So imagine like if you were a kid that was growing up and it was a radio fan if your favorite radio personality was also a 16 year old kid that had their own show, right? Exactly. You could see the possibilities. Yeah. And you go like, Oh, I want to, my hero is, uh, Donnie, Donnie Smith or, or Janie, Janie Watson from Chicago. She's got like a, her own show and, and does this and does that. Uh, suddenly like a story about a character who's able to set themselves on fire or like shoot Photoshop filters out of their fingers. Yeah. That becomes a little bit more boring compared to oh i want to be like the kid from pennsylvania who built a water engine an engine that runs on water or like built his own backyard helicopter right or you know like superheroes that are in the real world right didn't used to be a category back in the old days no and if they were then like yeah if they were then like they were talked about in their local papers but they certainly didn't get all the way to all the way out to you. Mm-hmm. And they may have not even existed, right? Like the other bizarre thing that's happening now is if you have an interest, the internet is giving you the opportunity to bury yourself in it. You can find out everything there is to know about guitars now. Yeah. Something that used to be only accessible through like talking to your aunt and uncle or buying guitar magazines at the local store. You can find out how they're built, the history of it, the optimization you can f- figure out people who are selling them for cheap in your community and, and get them. Yeah, my, my younger cousin, I'm so proud of him because he's this kid who I thought at one time because he lived out in the country uh, in like rural Ontario and because he was secluded by having uh, having to go to sc- like doing school at home and all these things. I was like, what is he going to get himself up to? Yeah. But because of my uncle's like musical interests, he fell in love with the guitar and then even started his own side business doing like mail order uh guitar parts out to him and then he'd build guitars and send them back to people cool yeah it's sort of like because of that interest and because of the accessibility of things on the internet he could he could build guitars he could like uh fix guitars he could he knew how to do all these things and learned how just by like you know uh, the expertise both in house with my uncle but also with finding these things on the, on the internet and to the extent where yet yeah, it wouldn't have been possible uh, at another time my friend uh from elementary school uh his little brother became like a luthier like he builds guitars and um he makes them all out of special wood so mm. if you've got like some tree that fell down that was important to you or like a piece of barn wood from your granddad's place you can like send it to him and he'll sculpt it into a custom guitar amazing so much of that i don't know it it reminds me of 
like a King Arthur story or something like the idea that you have like this special tool that you're going to make art with and it has like this backstory or like what was that was it a Kevin Costner movie or a Robert Redford movie or something where like that lightning strikes the tree in the back and then he makes his special baseball bat out of it I think that was the natural yeah the natural you know Robert Redford yeah (laughs) yeah yeah dingers Hit a digger. What do we, yeah. we need? We need something special like that. What's going to be our thing? We got to get a special microphone or something. Oh, it's through the uh, something gold shining. But it has to be found beyond the tracks. Hewn from from your your from your small Saskatchewan uh, town. Oh yeah, like I on the banister that I hit my head on every night going down the stairs. Bam. Yeah, you got to find that banister in your childhood home, and you've got to chop it apart or like find something on the internet to, to turn it into <laughs> a vanity item. Yeah, exactly. That you can walk around with. Oh, you mean this? Oh, yes. The, uh, the lampshade or lamppost. Well, no, not the lamppost. Uh, the, yeah, lampshade post made out of a pineapple. Oh, my shoes. You noticed them? They were made from the, the the pelt of my family dog, <laughs> my Falcor. <laughs> you can see him in this photo here, and now he is my clothes. Yes, indeed. They were with me always. He's super close. Yes, my, my underwear. Ah, yes, my childhood cat. Always close to me. <laughs> the Mr. Burns? <laughs> yeah. Bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, boy. I would start singing that too, but I don't think you have the rights for it. Yeah. <laughs> Copyright. Mm-hmm. Oh man, it's true. There's, there is just, just power, power in that nostalgia, and, uh, in a way that I don't think we even talked about. Of just like, what am I trying to say? Even, I don't know. I don't know. I trailed off there. Yeah. I was. I wanted to ask you some some questions about because of your background as an actor. Like, how do you do? You ever reflect on how the internet is going to change that medium, that 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 craft, that profession? I feel like I'll, I'll kind of outline my thesis. Right. Okay. There's certain disciplines that be, come in and out of um, fashion popularity yada yada Mm. based on the culture and the economy that those disciplines are living in Mm. right so if you were living in the 1800s and you wanted to be an entertainer right you could either play live music at the bar or you could put on little minstrel shows or vaudeville type of stuff in speakeasies and your talent would be assessed or channeled into your ability to connect with an audience. And um, that connection with the audience, since that was paramount, things like originality were less important compared to things like your familiarity with the local culture, mm. your familiarity with the, the characters and the barflies that would show up every day. Right. It was kind of a, a cheerleader kind of position. Right. Um, those vaudeville acts, they didn't adapt well to the industrial revolution because you had all sorts of new tools that allowed for recording. And so if you were a really great, uh, live drunken band that, 
really uh, suited having a lot of alcoholics and stuff like clashing beers together. Yeah, the noise of the, the noise of it and stuff. It was less important to be a really great musician than it was to have to be the ability like to play through chaos yeah. and the ability to make a fun atmosphere that people wanted to drink. Yes. Right? So when recorded media came along, a lot of those musicians were really bitter because you had um, an economy taking off where people, if they wanted to listen to music, now they could either go home and turn on the radio or they could buy these plastic records that they could play. And the people who were really good at making those records, it favored the person who was really great at playing the perfect version of that song. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to deal with like local Jimmy who can kind of play the song that you like. You could hear that folk song played uh, note perfect from who was the best in your country. Yeah. Right. The records could come in from anywhere. And now like there's an, an equally big shift that's kind of going on, right? Like the internet doesn't have the same bottleneck that old media did. So instead of having something generic, like um, the Cosby show, right? You can have a pantheon of other things like Louis CK type of things where it's not for everybody, right? Mm. It's going to be something that your kids can't watch. It's going to be something that your girlfriend won't watch. It's going to be something that is only for left-handed uh, Jewish cooks <laughs> right. from, from um, you know, a certain neighborhood. It's going to be something like this podcast, like I'm trying to do something hyper-local. You yeah. know, it's, it's not for everybody, right? You have to have an interest in kind of Roncesvalles, Toronto, Canada, and like artists that live in it. Right. It's like... Because of the reach of the internet, things can also be, because it's so vast, things can be and actually have to be sometimes like hyper-specific mm -hmm. to the point of like, is anyone going to listen to this? And people listen to this yeah. because it's interesting to their interests mm -hmm. and they can find it. And so what the question is when it comes to classical skills like acting, right? Right. Like acting was a, a thing that was developed. It's a series of skills at make-believe and playing pretend and right. being able to voice a, um, a headspace. It's sometimes kids, but like mostly adults, being able to tap into that quality that you have as a kid, that but you lose when you become like quote unquote more serious as an adult of just, yeah, being able to play pretend mm -hmm. and then to a further extent as uh, theater became film, film became TV and then internet makes and internet makes become what and then it, I guess is, is the, the question I throw to you. I suppose that is the, that is the, that is the question. That's a good question because like actors uh, from my perspective, take the material and then make that what they make it what what whatever their tools have given them the ability to make it uh because just like every other uh form of art there's a, a certain amount of tool sets that you can do that you can use to yeah. sort of make your art like as a painter there are a variety of different uh pr things that you can do to put paint on the canvas in a way that best uh suits your interpretation of what you want to do mm -hmm. um so as an actor too, like uh, one of the things, one of the forms I use is like almost at first mistaken for uh, method, but it is when you look closer, like closer to something that's the opposite of it because it's not taking 
um, presupposed or imaginary um, emotions. It's like taking everything that's on that page. It's called the practical aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, taking everything that's on that page, taking everything that's in front of you, and then just uh, putting your putting yourself into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a method that's like not surprisingly created in part by a writer. It's like the David Mamet school of acting, which is ironic because this is a man that's like quoted in his book for saying like acting school is for idiots like <laughs> to really like put it down in a most like basic term. Uh, but it's like, it's like reading what's on the script and then saying what's on the script. So uh, actors will take what wants to be like what they might want to produce or what a director or producer or writer wants to produce and like make it that. So that means that, that I think can still survive into YouTube videos and divine uh, because you're dealing with still a medium, no matter the size, shape or length the, that is all about production. Uh, now that might change acting itself into a more improved or sketch based sort of idea of like yeah, everything's it on the seems fly. Like the people who, um, who are interested in improv, it's a little bit more of a, collective kind of thing like they're not looking for permission from a director or a producer to put it on exactly it's just something that seems interesting in the moment that's something that i think was i think like youtube and vine are in a way influenced by um mr show and then after that tim and eric in the way that it's just like mistakes are left in mistakes are actually like exposed and like exploded because they're funny Right. Because I said said this thing weird, so I'm going to actually put a subtitle that spells that out for you. The happy accident. Exactly. Uh, and sort of using that as a basis for not an easy way to create comedy, but like a, a, a way that has proven to work. And you could t- kind of see like the writing on the wall too when it comes to comedy and film. Uh, because there was that time where there were blockbuster comedies where they were like, hundred million dollar comedies and that sort of disappeared in a way that like comedies are either uh they either have to be super cheap or they're going to be more and more on television Mm -hmm. uh i think the the prevalence of great tv shows you that like shows the reason why that uh what i'm trying to say that like that why the reason that the internet or like the sort of perspective that internet has had on things mm-hmm. um because there's not enough money to actually put into making these like hyper specific things on a wider scale on a right. broader scale it's either going to be a hundred million dollar blockbuster or it's going to be a tv show because there's that time to like spread it spread it out across ad dollars right or it's going to be like a hyper specific indie film or it's just going to be now web series. I know. think that there's a posture change that's going on too, where back in the industrial age, when you were looking at like the height of corporate power, mm. you had corporate industrial television shows where, you know, um, the head of NBC has a meeting with um, producers and he brings them all in, um, in an assembly line kind of way. And he picks his favorite idea that he thinks uh, trends well with like the the demographics. Yeah, I for one am not 
going to compromise my artistic integrity. And I'll tell you something else. This is the show, and we're not going to change it. Right? <laughs> How about this? I manage a circus. And then they throw millions of dollars down from the their their tower, and then it goes into the hands of a producer, and then there's gaffers, and this whole industrial team comes together to to make this show and then there's yeah. focus groups and there's canned laughter and they polish out all the rough edges well, like even before like uh seinfeld there was like the shell corporation presents carol Burnett, mm-hmm. that sort of thing yeah and they 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 polish this thing into an industrial product that that feels like in the same headspace as tide detergent right like mm. it's it's gonna it's gonna solve your laughter problem it's gonna solve your um uh, t- uh, tired from a, a hard day at work, want to relax in front of the TV, the boob tube kind of problem. Yeah. And then you think of, of the headspace and the posture that's going on now on the internet, right? Where you've got people who are motivated by a personal interest or a need to express themselves and a, 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 a desire to want to connect with their community. Right. Going out and doing generous things for free and and sending them out to their friends and you think about the kind of like work that that is going to encourage right and i don't think it's a coincidence like when you when you talk about like how improv gets a resurgence from that and Mm how um there's this this change in posture from let's do an industrial top-down thing where we analyze a script and try to polish it and focus group it and make it perfect we're like movie studios that's like Let's let's have a get together where we put interesting people and ideas and we shake it up mm-hmm. and we try to sift out the human elements, the human moments that come from that. The the moments that like are surprisingly funny, surprisingly um sincere. And when we find those, we celebrate it and we go like we we made something moving in that, that bit. I feel like that's that that's kind of like where the the type of material that the internet is going to um em- embrace. Yeah. Those kinds of things that are patient and human and sometimes remarkable. Yeah. Versus the old I think that's what it has an advantage on over the old media that was like contrived and industrial and, and polished and how like one man in one movie studio owns like the contracts of all these actors who were huge at the time but also were made to make like what a five movies in two years just because like we got to get you our, our money's worth out of you as opposed to a community of people that spring up especially when it comes to like you know comedy on television yeah. where everyone's connected because everyone works together and everyone wants to work together mm-hmm. everyone's striving to make that effort and be collaborative Mm -hmm. as opposed to like insulary. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's definitely a lot of rewards that come. The internet is encouraging people to be more generous and more outgoing and more incestuous. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not like, uh, it's not like cheers versus Seinfeld. It's like, let's get these two together and make like a cool new thing. Yeah. Like Amy Poehler sees the, uh, like, the Broad City Girls do something amazing on the internet, and they were like, "We need to get you on TV. I'm going to help you out on that." Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm going to do my like. We're going to do our best to 
to give you a spotlight. It just occurred to me, like when I was doing that last riff, that the other downside to the the old model, like if you're trying to make a really polished show um, that ignores the humanity of the of the characters, you know, like Seinfeld isn't about Seinfeld. No, Se- Jerry Seinfeld plays a character named Seinfeld in a show that was written by Larry David and is kind of a pseudo reality loosely based on his observations and experiences in, in New York the real world yeah. and put through the filter of like, it has to be funny and we can't swear. There's like certain rules that he's put on it and stuff like that. And you think about like how much something like curb your enthusiasm, which was a step closer to internet land, right? Where right. Larry, this is something that's closer to being derived directly from Larry David's life. And we're going to allow him to talk the way he does. And instead of like hiring some Broadway actor to pretend to be Larry David, it's going to be Larry David in the thing. Mm. And then you go another step closer to internet land where Jerry Seinfeld decides to like start up a YouTube show where he drives around and picks up other people that he lives in Beverly Hills with in his, his Porsche cars. Yeah. And he buys coffees with them and they shoot the shit and then they edit it down into a 20 minute thing. Mm. And then that's the show. It's like, you want to see Seinfeld? Well, this is him, and this is closer to who he really is, not like the the the, the fake struggling comic from TV. He's like this multimillionaire that has a car fetish and and gets to shoot the shit with funny people, and only hangs out with celebrities and lives in this weird like bubble in Beverly Hills, and you get to kind of see that kind of freaky side of life, right? Right. S- still interested in watching it? You you go like, oh yeah yeah, and add a nostalgia and stuff like that. But you know what? I feel like I'd rather, you know, go to Russell's trivia club night because that's I'm, I want to be with and connect with people that are real and in from my my circle. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there's this this illusion that's that's breaking. And I think it can be really closely compared to something like another industrialized product like Tide detergent. Right. There was this illusion that they had built up through branding and advertising and stuff. That was kind of true. It did get your clothes clean but it's also full of phosphates that are like poisoning the river. Right. Right. You have a a thing like Seinfeld, which is like, it's going to solve your TV problem and help you unwind. But the characters that you're falling in love with on the show aren't real. They're fantasies. And it's so cool to like, see the internet be able to slice through because if you're a fan of Joe Rogan, he's a real guy. Yeah. You can actually call up Joe Rogan or like send him, a present or yeah he is real people he comes to your town every so often and you can jump and be crazy and say thanks man shake his hand i started jujitsu because of you yeah it's yeah it's 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 that it's something that was always in magazines of course like they're real people too they're just like us but because of the not just like the fact that it's the internet but the fact that there's now different things there to completely break down those walls and cut contact and talk to them directly yeah it's like it's breaking the fourth wall it's breaking breaking kayfabe if like (laughs) if you want to get into a pro wrestling term and like that's one of those you know i am a i am a pro wrestling fan in and of itself and you even see that there it's like reality permeates everything uh because there's just so much more information and something that was once like talked about in the uh, like the back page of a magazine, yeah. um, like be it you know pro wrestling interest illustrated or like People magazine, yeah, like 
I'm like, this is what they're really doing in their lives. It's now it's front front page stuff because like somewhere along the way, the media found out that like, that's what people liked. And then somewhere along the way, some smart uh, Silicon Valley guy was like, Oh, let's just make that the site, mm-hmm. make that the communication tool. Uh, yeah. So that the, there is no veil of, of PR. There is no like pretend life. It's just, the life that they uh, live and you either enjoy it or, and you want to listen to it and hear more of it or it's like, yeah, it's easier to find. And I, I think, isn't that, uh, isn't that a metaphor for what's going on with everybody, right? Like mm-hmm. we're all starting to realize that there's not this divide where you've got your dreams and aspirations and it's separate from the, the day job that you just struggle with and, and try to get by through there's you only have one life right and there's something about being mindful of that that allows you to appreciate it a whole lot more mm-hmm. you know um i love this uh i had when i was a kid uh i was working at sobeys at the fish counter i was cutting up like salmon and stuff and i had this really remarkable um boss uh who managed the department named uh luis luis gonzalez ramirez and he was like a Cuban exile. Like he fled Cuba after the revolution and um, he lost all, he was like a wealthy man in, in the former Cuba. And then he came from a good family and then he fled to Canada and lost like his whole fortune and stuff. And he had like this incredible um, enlightenment kind of right. just, just to be alive and being having an opportunity to live in like a free country where mm. he didn't get like fucked with by the police and stuff. Yeah, and that perspective. Be able to like, have a job. Yeah, and he taught me a lot of things about like fucking dignity, right? Because if you're a spoiled kid in the suburbs, right, you've got all of these chips on your shoulder about how it's like, oh, I wish I could have a cool job, like I worked at the movie theater. It's not fair. I get to watch movies all day. That would be awesome. Instead, I gotta wear these stupid rubber boots. And like he would come in to to work and he'd be like whistling a tune and um, just like full of enthusiasm. And the the thing that he taught me was that like your job immediately becomes more engaging if you attempted to to be the best in the world at it. Yeah. He's like, if you're going to be a a seafood salesman and run like a, a, a seafood counter, try to make it the best in the world. Right. Um, try to have an engagement with your customers where um, you're, you're celebrating the food. Try to, he, he would set up like a hibachi barbecue and he would cook food for the, the customers and he would teach me about like the recipes and like try to go and find books and things about seasoning and learn about what kind of, you know, combinations you can to like make the, you know, the shark steak like lose its, its ammonia flavor and have like the, the subtleties of the meat come out and stuff. And he would talk about where each of the, the fish were from and all this background that you could like share with the customers. Right. And instead of turning it into like this raw transaction where we're just moving meat through the grinder into people's shopping carts. Mm. It was like, this is an opportunity to tell a story and to make a connection with a, a person and to do a service for that person for that little slice of time. Yeah. And I've been finding that like, I've been reflecting on that like a lot as I think of the internet and how it's, it's so much fun 
to approach the artwork that you're making for the internet from that point of view instead of the old industrial point of view yeah. where you're constantly filled up with like this dread where you know if you want to be an actor you your aspirations had better be to like get a, a, a fucking like role in like a Marvel blockbuster movie because otherwise like you're it, a failure. Exactly. Then mm-hmm. you should be, should be working in the restaurant and not doing anything acting wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, no, and that I, I agree. That's totally, totally something that you should keep in mind of like, it doesn't have to be the biggest and the best, uh, wherever you are, make the most of it. Like, like your, your seafood counter might as well be like a five-star restaurant mm-hmm. to you because like, yeah, what you make out of it will is like what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hey, who knows? Like if you put all that effort into it, like, like, uh, like Louise taught you to do too. It's like, then, uh, who knows? Like someone might notice, notice and be like, can we talk to you? Cause it, you're good at this. I'm like, Holy shit. You're good at this. So the store is uh, whatever, but holy crap, do they got awesome employees? Right, exactly, and then it, it it puts you in a spotlight that you would otherwise not be in, and it makes you a happier person because yeah, you you're wor- not worrying about being quote unquote the best. You're just or like uh, yeah, you're not trying to be the best. You're just the best of what you do therefore i don't know you think of all your happy memories and you go remember that time when your friends all showed up for a surprise party and you had a great night and it was the the most fun you'd ever had it's like does anybody ever try to convince you that no it was actually more fun when you went to the store and you bought that that industrial product yeah. and then you walked around with it for a while and he poked at the buttons and <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's a, one of those important lessons i learned too it's like it's it's being constructive as opposed to destructive like look to add to uh, to something don't look to take away anything you know uh because you're adding to stuff too like you said too like being able to, to have a good conversation with or add something to the lives of these cust- customers uh it it multiplies forward too. Totally. And uh, yeah, like you're affecting lives just by living your life every and you day. Can, the, the trippy part about it is it's like that butterfly effect movie, right? Mm. Where it doesn't take long. Like you can enter into the system and you can just like start shooting out good vibes mm. at people and you can s- s- slowly see the, the circle and the, the poisoned atmosphere that sometimes like I, I remember when I worked at, I started to go um, mobile when I was setting up the seafood counters. Like I came to Toronto and I was also working in Oakville. So I kind of became like a mercenary whenever there was a, um, a person that would call in sick, I would go in and set up their seafood department right. in different places in Toronto. And it was funny to see how the same job can have like such a different atmosphere all over the place. No, it's just like the exact same, especially with, it's like a, it's a franchise. So it's mm-hmm. like everything's all the pieces are the same, but the people are different because yeah. the atmosphere is because of, of the, like one bad manager or something mm-hmm. can like poison everybody's attitude. Right. Yeah. Where he's just like this toxic cloud that's moving through the grocery store. Right. There's yeah. this, uh, one Toronto place. Uh, I think it was Todd Morton Sobeys over in, uh, 
the other side of the the bridge when you head out east mm. and they had this like nazi that was running the place with a like a pencil mustache and like thick coke bottle glasses and he was skinny as a stick and had really pressed shirts and things and he's just walking around with like this fucking scowl on his face and you could see everybody tense up whenever like he would wander through the departments mm. and things like that and i remember the the first encounter with 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 this dark demon like he was coming into the thing and like i had my confidence was at a pretty good level because I didn't work in that store. Right. And I kind of had like this swagger. I was the fixer. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you're calling the wolf? <laughs> Shit, Negro, that's all you had to say. Yeah, you know, exactly. I could just like roll into those places and I knew where all the equipment, how it worked and stuff. And I was mm. like, you ever seen a, 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 you ever seen fish laid out in a rainbow? <laughs> you ever seen fish laid out in the figure eight? There's like different patterns that we were worked out. And we were like, you see, lay the salmon sticks out like this. So you need to see all sides. It's like card tricks, you know. You, <laughs> yeah, you, exactly. you fan them and stuff in, in just the right way, and uh, you steal. Um, these are all the pro tips in case there's like some Sobeys kids that are still out there and they still allow you to do this. Yeah. But you go to the, the produce you know. department early in the morning, uh, and you steal some like endive and like various colored lettuces, and uh, you wash them real good, and you can like use that as to add a little bit of color Ooh, to the display. Nice. Anyways, so the 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 uh, the Dark Lord came and visited the department, and it was immediately like, you know, who the fuck are you? Blah blah blah. He's all, this isn't the way we do things. Like you're supposed to lay the the fish out in straight lines, and you know he he wanted to measure the the ice wall at the back of the counter to make sure that it was above 17 inches or whatever it was, and uh, I could just see that like he was he was uh, I don't know he's killing the party yeah you know and i can totally empathize with everybody else who's in that store because they would live under his tyranny and it's cyclical too because like the energy that he puts out there as this like complete ass Mm -hmm. will then uh affect the energy of everyone working towards like around him and like they're not going to get along with him they reaffirm his worldview exactly like the world is full of scum and slime balls and lazy pukes and i'm the the drill sergeant that has to Snap it exactly, shit. and they're like, "Well, I'm not going to be anything better because he just thinks I'm a scum or a slime ball or a lazy puke." So whatever. This is a shit job, and uh, you know. And I'm sure, like, the turnover at that place was like astronomical at the same ca- time. Like, unless you're a lifer, you're going to get out of there as soon lifer. as possible you got fucking stockholm syndrome or something where yeah. like you've fallen in love with the nazi and you're just like every day i, I just hope that he'll smile at me or something yeah. give me some sort of acknowledgement please dad oh no i eventually like had to stop uh taking jobs from that place because um there was you know everybody there was weird because of the atmosphere mm. um there was this this younger kid that was also working in the department with me and he thought that i was fucking weird because i was happy all the time <laughs> yeah and uh i would leave him like little itinerary notes at the end of the shift for things that he had to remember to do mm. um that i had done that might not be aligned with like his routine right and because I was like in school for illustration, I'd also draw pictures and I have a bent sense of humor because, you know, Gen Y and like, yeah. watch The Simpsons and shit. Yeah. So I would, uh, this one time I drew this itinerary list and I wrote the comment, um, 
Do well, young Bradley. Follow these instructions and you will be rewarded in the afterlife. Dot, dot, dot. And I drew a picture of a little devil with maracas <laughs> and like a fucking lizard tongue and stuff. Right? Yeah. And when I went in for my shift the next day, um, the Nazi calls me up to the office and sits me down. And I'm, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Right? It, right. It's like an interrogation room. His office is all like bleak and depressing. There's that single light hanging from and, the And uh, he's like, I have to be very careful choosing my words because technically I can't talk to you about religion. Right. He's like, there's laws and stuff that protect freedom of expression in those regards. He's like, but you've made your fellow employee very uncomfortable with like your expression of your said religion or whatever. Oh, wow. So like this little retard thought that I was a Satanist or something. Yeah. And that, cause he, he was, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, accidentally stepping on the toes of like a Christian kid or something. He was, he was like a little punk, yeah, like a scruffy little. He was like, oh, he's, he just thought that I was weird with no sense of humor. Yeah, I tell you, I tells you, I tells you. I mean, and and that is the sort of thing of like you have to put that out with everything you do, it's especially in with the internet too, where there's that mindset of like no matter what you put out there, there's already too much out there. No one's paying attention. The end. Mm-hmm. And if you come with that like self defeatist attitude, attitude of like just adding another like log to the fire, like whatever, like then no one's gonna pay attention because they're gonna be like, oh, he's sounds like he's just adding another log to the fire, whatever. Okay. <laughs> uh, but if you yeah, if you enjoy yourself, if you go forward and like legitimately have fun with that, people will notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's. I think. Um, People are more empathetic than they're sometimes uh, given credit for as a whole. Being able to pick up on people enjoying themselves or people, yeah, that that enjoy what they do. Mm-hmm. There's a riff in uh, Seth Godin's book, um, The Icarus Deception, where he talks about flipping the attitude where, say you were on tour with your trivia show, Mm. And you arrived at a venue that you thought was going to be jam-packed and there was only 10 people there. Right. Right. One person who's from like a, um, who has like a bad attitude about the situation could say like, oh, woe is me. Uh, I thought that I was here when really we're here. And like all these suckers are just like the, 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 the backwash yeah. that, that whatever. The, the positive attitude to look at it is like, these are the ones that came. These are the people who love you. Yeah. These are the people who showed up for your birthday or yeah, whatever. Exactly. You guys and made it out. Like, yes. Hey, blah, blah, blah. We can do something more intimate now because there's less of an audience in between. To- and that's the thing I've found too. It's like sometimes the most entertaining nights of trivia uh, have been like not a, like a 15, 20 person uh, crowd or like 15, 20 team crowd. It's like sometimes it's those like three, four, five teams because you have that personal connection because you can like, legitimately speak person to person and have a uh, rapport and, and, and get to know these people as not just like uh, patrons at your event, mm-hmm. but as like friends that show up and enjoy themselves. Yeah. Uh, and you might actually make a friend. Exactly. Right? You might actually know somebody by their first name who is like, you know, if you're ever in uh, Rexdale and you need a couch to sleep on, you need to come on out. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, there, there, there is so many people there are so many people that i have been able to meet and get to know of that are like-minded in terms of pop culture and then enjoy the same things uh 
terms of, and have such great conversations with just because simply like they came up to this out this to, to this night that I thought they would enjoy or they thought they would enjoy and then they connect on a personal level and they show up 20 times 40 times like 60 times now mm-hmm. for some teams and I'm like you were good people like some people yeah some good friends people that I've, I talk all the time with on Facebook and and go for drinks with afterwards it's it's become very much a like yeah a, a culture of uh, a, a fun network of friends as opposed to just yeah. and it's funny to look at projects from a different from that from that positive point of view because as soon as you do it stops being like an exercise as it stops being a warm-up towards a bigger venue right that it stops being a race towards being like the the show that wins or like the the entertainment experience that wins mm. and starts to become a gift exercise and an a, a human um highlight of of a city and a, and a culture in a city agreed you know you get back to those old village days where you know people you know used to just get together in the town square and play some music and have some drinks because that was life that's yeah. what is fun and you should do that instead of trying to turn everything into an industrial job that I agreed and i found too that like you can't or i can't uh go into a night and depending on if it's like 10 teams or three teams like do something different mm-hmm. i'd rather give like varying crowds the same experience than to adapt it or otherwise be like you know what it doesn't matter for the sake of them showing up because mm-hmm. it, like you said like these people arrived like whether it was a slow work week or it's a school week or like the weather's shit but they still came out like you still came out we're gonna have a fun time we're gonna enjoy ourselves uh and in terms of locations too like when i first started some 300 odd like events ago overall i mean i thought looking at uh the drake going like now that's a place that i need to do trivia because like look at how crazy busy they are like mm-hmm. oh man what could what could i do going to the drake or like going to the gladstone yeah and then after doing it for about a year at Cardinal Rule and really enjoying myself and finding a great culture, with not just with the patrons and the participants, but with the ownership as well, just a great communication and becoming part of that family of that uh, location. I then picked up a, or like started doing Trivia Club at the Gladstone because I'm thinking like, yeah, fantastic, this venue. But whether it was either miscommunication on my part with them or expectations were too high. It's like, lo and behold, like it wasn't what I wanted from the location. And it wasn't a culture that I certainly, not, not, nothing wrong with it and nothing wrong with like their direction when it comes to uh, like events, be a trivia or otherwise, but it just wasn't something that fit my mindset when it came to like a trivia night. Something about the chemistry didn't work. Exactly. The chemistry just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and like expectations were either too high or just um, miscommunicated on both sides. Did you um, listen to the Steve Martin autobiography? 
Uh, I yeah, I read it. Uh, the Born Standing Up, right? Mm-hmm. It's fantastic autobiography. Did you did you l- download the audiobook? I have not. You should download the audiobook. He I, reads it. I imagine it's like an amazing like one man show. Mm-hmm. That's like four hours, five hours long of just him. It's just nice to be able to hear what the bit sounds like instead yes. of just reading it on the page. Yeah. Because um, yeah, that's something that I or to let you go to the story in just a sec. Mm-hmm. Like like reading that book and and sort of having reaffirmed that there's there's a power in everything that you do like nothing is ever lost whether it was would be me like go, going to acting acting school or having that paper route or like working at um a coffee shop in like on queen and spadina it's like and with you and like uh like working at the at the fish counter mm-hmm. it's like seafood counter it's like these things affect everything you do, whether it be working with people or working within a specific art, like painting. I'm sure there's like, there's lessons that you learned from Louise that go to words like your art mm-hmm. and, and and yourself as like a, as a designer or like filmmaker that like, it's all in. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to go to the extreme with that, you start to arrive at like kind of the ancient Christian philosophy where it's like, you start to be um, appreciate your pain and being thankful that something is happening to you, you know, like mm. that um, those it's not a coincidence that like some of the best artists have like the most fucked up lives. Right. Because, you know, you have real things that are happening to you. Like, I think that there's a curse in people that um, ended up having an uneventful life. You know, that seems to always be the the over the rainbow kind of fantasy that people have. It's like, I just wish I could give my child an uneventful life where there's no danger and they get everything that they want without trying very hard and they die on their own bed surrounded by many, many grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like, well, yeah, that's that's right. fine. That's that's also okay, but And no fun was had and nothing was ever learned. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you go like Colbert was was talking about because um, like Colbert's a, a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they he was being interviewed at a character about it, and uh, the thing that was warped about his upbringing is like his dad and I think two brothers were killed in a plane crash. Oh yeah, and um, he was his mom was a Christian, and they uh, were comforting one another with the idea that. The, the Christian story is really all about um, the transcendence that kind of happens from an arc where the person is put through pain. You right. Know? Like, uh, it's kind of like the Buddhist third way, right? Like, through uh, denial of materialism and uh, starvation and meditation you can achieve this kind of like sensory bliss where you accept that you can have like an inner peace, even though you have nothing. Right. That kind of thing. I think that there's some sort of parallel to that in what we're talking about, where it's like you appreciate the pain parts in retrospect. I mean, obviously it always sucks to go through bad things in the moment, right? but you hope that like a person will, have the good fortune to like come out of it and be able to like reflect on it and go like that was something real that happened exactly right like think of the fucking like simulations that we're building right grand theft auto what's all about it's horrible stuff right like being 
the the active life of somebody who is a thief and a gangster and a murderer is right. terrible but we appreciate that it's things are happening like, and the str- struggle <laughs> works towards something bigger yeah uh, there's an arc exactly yeah and like which, as you're saying too it's like i look at my life and go well there's a lot of things that i wouldn't want to relive or there was pain that i can see and think of like like immediately in in the years past and even like in recent memory it's like things could be quote unquote better but like it brings me here so i wouldn't want it to be anything different mm-hmm. um which is and then and there's great power in that too of you know of realizing like in all the things in your life and like even now yeah even now like things could be better blah 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 but like i look at my life and like trivia club is keeping me both uh busier than i thought i could be in my early 20s going like oh i'm so bored i wish i had something to do with my time wish i could get out there and Mm -hmm. now i'm like so busy that i'm like i need to give myself some time off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or going like, oh man, I wish I could, you know, have a. You need a co-host. I, yeah, exactly. You need to be able to pass the torch every so often and go like, you know what? It's uh, it's Sarah's night. Sarah's <laughs> night. She's got a thing, and then. And like having uh, Chrissy in my life, like this this woman who loves me and this woman that I love, who, uh, it wasn't maybe it wasn't like in my mind unheard of or like unthinkable, but something that I thought like, oh man, I wish I could have that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and there's, and there's challenges in everyday life, be it with, you know, my relationship or with my, with my occupation within Trivia Club or like the self-produced stuff, but like all of it's worth or like goes towards something that I look back on and I'm so proud of and so happy for. Yeah. These beautiful moments with beautiful people. Totally, man. Mm-hmm. That's, that's fucking where it's at. So we should probably wrap up. Alrighty. Cause it's been, um, two hours. 33 minutes. Hey, go, good job, team. Yeah. That's how you Jeez. roll on the fucking internet with no advertising. Right people. on. Every fucking podcast that I like is being ruined by monetization. Like bookended. Even like Duncan Trussell like had all of these great ads at the beginning where he would just talk about like claustrophobia and germophobia <laughs> and using amazon.com because like he didn't want any of the the anti-vaxxers to like give him new diseases and stuff yeah he's he's gotten back on the script now like he's they the the the, the, the podcast people are the advertisers are like you know what there's a lot of other shows that have big audiences duncan we're just wondering you know we're gonna take that six grand back if you don't get back on the leash here buddy yeah we'll keep on giving you money as long as com say the the address (laughs) and say like you know you can talk about a book that you like yeah Yeah. we can make some suggestions about books that your audience would like um nature box uh, joe rogan is on the script now oh my yeah i mean it's because the the money's there it's like everyone's catching on Everyone's catching on to the idea. Fuck that. Those guys are making money off of their their live stand-up stuff. Don't fuck up your podcast by by, uh, taking that corporate teat (laughs) in your teeth. Or, you know, fucking like they're supposed to be leaders, right? But why have... Set a standard. I liked when they were doing the jokey commercials because you're setting a standard that like we don't fuck with the format. Yeah. But why have, uh, you know, three revenue streams when you can have four? 
Yeah. What are you offering me, Russell? <laughs> are you going to start be the first sponsor of Idea Grave? Ooh. <laughs> Trivia Club. Yeah. You know, I was like, honestly, like there, I have been in- interested in like doing a segment at the beginning where I do like a brief thing that would be devoted to advertising. Yeah. But instead I just run down the different stuff that I'm interested in on blog TO or whatever my friends projects that are working on. Right. Exactly. And, you know, just kind of spread the community awareness post that like this, there's a cool thing that, you know, every Thursday you go down Ossington street, you can look at all the galleries on queen street. It, the first Thursdays is when they set up all of the, the artwork. Right. Yeah, everybody yeah. should go to that. We'll see you on the strip. Yeah, right, exactly. It's the yeah, it's like the um, like cool links that you'd used to find on a good blog or a website of like, oh yeah, we should check that out. Oh, cool, mm-hmm. that that. And mm-hmm. instead, like that, all of that cool stuff that used to be on local radio has been like corrupted by all the people with money. Like went to the front of the line, and so instead, you get to hear about you know Audible dot com every fucking five minutes and yeah a lawyer service and and then like a serial which is a fantastic podcast is almost like um not quite but like almost overshadowed by like mailkimp <laughs> mailkimp use a mailkimp yeah and you're like oh well, that's lovely but come on yeah kind of yeah. works though I mean, there's Nature Box on the table, and Jessica does use MailChimp. Ooh. So. <laughs> mm. She owns a kettlebell. But the, the thing <laughs> that's crazy about it is, like, uh, Joe Rogan and his friend Aubrey are on the right track. Yeah. Because, like, the, the what you really want to do is just have a souvenir shop. Because people who are giving you permission to whisper in their ear all the time, they're going to want to start doing the things that you do. And so there's a natural um, bleed over there where it's not gross. Like if you go to Philip Philip Bloom's cinematographer that I like on the internet and he kind of has a a broad tribe of of people who go to him for camera reviews. It is a very special camera. It's a very powerful tool in a very small box. That sounds a bit wrong. Within Philip Bloom's like site, there's reviews for the gear and then you can also go through his portal to like B&H and then he gets like a small percentage of whatever you buy there. Yeah. I feel like that is a perfectly honest way to monetize your website. And that's the thing too. It's, it's monetization uh, or our sponsorship. You have to approach it in a way that you can still be proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, and like back being backed by Amazon, Amazon.com or like NatureBox, like, I mean, there's a lot of things to be proud of on these things that these corporations do. Um, and then like with trivia club, I've found with like, there's certain movies or certain things or that, that would, that would like to sponsor me. So I'm like, I have to take it in going like, yes, I do want swag. Yes. I do want that. Maybe uh t- Twitter re- retweet to get that extra eyes on it. But like, do I want uh Birdman to be associated with trivia club? Yes. Yeah. It's a fantastic film. It's like a lot of cool people involved. So yeah, I'll, I'll do that sight unseen. Do I want Transformers like four? Transformers Four, like, like uh, recent, like t- Hot Tub Time Machine Two. Do I want that? No, you got to watch it first. Yeah, it's true. But yeah, like you have to see it. You have to. Mm-hmm. I have to be able to see that. Like that's one of those like not quite sight unseen, but let's see how this goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also thought that it would be cool to start off every episode with a prompt. So, which I was was I was I was uh, writing the other day, and I was thinking like, what's the anti advertising? What is like advertising has become what Alan Moore describes as like 
it's dark magic, right? Yeah. It's people who are using the old school techniques of magic, repetition, uh, beauty, symmetry, um, design, um, all of those old techniques that magicians used to use to motivate and inspire their tribes. Yeah. Advertisers have sucked all the artists out of the economy and are using it to turn people into um, mindless consumer cheap things yeah that don't have a dialogue in their tribe they're just they have like this monosyllabic yeah this like parroting hum. ability mm. and uh and so like i was thinking like what's the opposite that you could do what are what could you do to like make people when they hear at the beginning of the episode they want to make stuff and they want to um wake up and they want to like seek out and they want to engage instead of this weird consumer thing where you want to be isolated and working hard to buy more and more industrial crap. Right. Get so, that, get out there and collaborate as opposed to being part of. Yeah. Mm. I was thinking about starting to do a prompt at the beginning of each episode where you like give people a little art assignment. I like it. Like a do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A DIY corner. Mm. Cause yeah, and that's the thing too. It's like working with your hands and being able to get there and out there and, it's just such a proud moment, no matter what it is when it's finished or when you're, when you create that thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, and that's such a beautiful possibility of creating community through that too. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Sharing. So anyways, like you should, uh, plug when your trivia club stuff is going on and people who are in the greater Toronto area can check it out. Oh yes, indeed. Uh, you can find trivia club on the Facebook on facebook.com slash trivia club all one word we're on twitter at trivia underscore club on itunes just look for trivia club network we should be the only podcast still on that name yeah yeah, yeah. number one in my category oh <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> youtube.com slash trivia club and then in toronto uh we're at three locations um throughout the week on every other monday so starting on the 30th of of March and going forward every other week. Uh, it, we're at Hitch in Leslieville, just east of the Queen and Leslie corner there, uh, or west, but we're right near there, Hitch. And then Tuesdays, every Tuesday at 9 p.m., we're at Lou Dogs near Ryerson, so that's Dryden Church, just west of there, east. Ah, <laughs> these directions. But yeah, Dryden Church on Tuesdays. of Toronto is nobody knows where anything is. <laughs> exactly. I'm part of that. And then Wednesdays, we're in Roncesville. Yes, indeed, the original home. We're about to celebrate three years on the, with the Grand Championship celebration. I'm going to get you a plaque. Nice. I'm going to spend 25 bucks on a plaque, and I'm going to stick it to some post. Ooh. On, without permission. Fantastic. And we'll have a little ribbon cutting ceremony and stuff. That'll be fun. This is exciting. Uh, and that's on at Cardinal Rule. That's at 5 Roncesville Avenue at Queen and Ronce. Uh So every Wednesday at 8 p.m. I think they still have excellent uh, vegan, what is it, lemon meringue or uh, some kind of lemon pie tart thing I had there was, was exceptional. Yeah, they do delicious, yeah, vegan and veggie stuff. Uh, not against any of the other uh, locations, but Cardinal Rule definitely has the best food <laughs> of my three locations. Um, but yeah, so check out Cardinal Rule on Wednesdays, Lou Dogs on Tuesdays, and Hitch on, mo- on Mondays. And it'd be great to see you there. 
as I say at Trivia Club to end every night, it's not what you know, it's what you learn along the way. Beautiful. What's your exit music? What's my exit music? Ooh, I didn't think about this. There's a mashup I really love. It's called Party Someday, and it's Biggie and the Strokes. Nice. Okay, I'll find that. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Russell. Thanks, Jesse. And good night, y'all. Good night. Sacks up and axe inside kicks with my sidekicks, rocking fly kicks, honey's wanna check.